able to, to make the journey down to downtown Montreal. This is the first time here on the East Coast we've done something live, in the, not on Zoom, in Canada. Uh, so this is particularly good for the soul. Um, we were doing things a little bit more regularly with the Rising Tide Foundation, with the Canadian Patriot Magazine, and Concordia University, or the library, before the whole COVID thing struck and we had to shut down the economy because of, you know, we were told to. Uh, so we kind of went online. And going online was a bit of a, um, a double-edged sword. It was, it was crappy because you, you lose the human touch. You lose that ability to just communicate in, in, in that, uh, especially when you can't replicate with human beings in the same room. But at the same time, we did get to meet a lot of people around the world. Um, some people were in Spain, yeah. right? We encountered some of our, our meetings, you know, that normally never would have come to uh, one of our little meeting locations in Montreal. So that was nice. We don't see it. We, we have been able to meet a lot of a lot of people, and, and so that that's that's interesting. So now we're going to be, be trying to increasingly get back into reality. Um, today, the topic of today's presentation, as I was alluding to, is why overpopulation is a myth. I'm saying all this again because now it's recording, so for those listening on YouTube, they might want to know what, what's going on today. That, that is the theme, and that is what we will be dealing with. However, um, due to some of the insanity being promoted by the Congress, the Pentagon, the Canadian government, the UK government, there's a lot of messaging that is harmonizing in a very intensive way right now about the fact that people should not really care so much or be so concerned about what's going on in Ukraine as a proxy war between NATO and the entire Anglo-American establishment that runs the military-industrial complex, which is trying to spread itself, you know, deeper and deeper into, well, basically, encircle Russia with a policy known as full-spectrum dominance. And I think everyone here has probably done a little bit of research. They have an idea of this idea of NATO as a global military force. They've done the same thing around China's perimeter in the Pacific. Um, this is very serious. There's war games, military exercises going on, not just from... Uh, from Russia's southern perimeter, but also in the Pacific, uh, there's an attempt to try to create a block that involves getting Japan, getting South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, also Taiwan and India into some form of a military alliance under the control of the U.S. military industrial complex. That's a serious thing. And the Chinese, you listen to Chinese media, you listen to Russian media, you get a very quick sense that this is a high priority, a high level of concern that there is an attempt to destroy the aspirations of these nations of Eurasia, which are trying to create an alternative system based on a different set of priorities, a different set of values, and that there's an attempt to destroy that, even to the point of launching a nuclear war. And this is being openly discussed, repeated. But if you just watch Canadian or American press, even meant much of the alternative media, you wouldn't really know very much about that. You'd have to literally go to Taz, you have to go to China People's Daily, you've got to go to the local media of these nations to appreciate what the priorities what they're concerned with. So instead of these things, instead of the economic collapse, the, 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 the impending meltdown of the banking system, don't think that the Canadian banks are not integrated into the global bubble economy of fictitious capital, unpayable rates of debt, and speculation based on speculation, based on insurance, based on speculation, called derivatives, that have been so blown out of proportion that these outnumber out something like, it's like 40 times the world GDP, the actual so-called, like, gross domestic product of the world. Derivatives now, which didn't exist 30 years ago, in any significant fashion, now outnumber what the world produces by a factor of at least 40. That's insane. That's a time bomb. And that grew up over 30 years almost. There was only 2 trillion derivatives that were measurable in 1993. 2 trillion. Today it's like 1.4 quadrillion at least. Absurd. 
So instead of actually dealing, because human beings are problem solvers, right? Like we, we sometimes we're problem makers, but we're also problem solvers. And when we have a positive mindset, and we're using our creative reason or conscience, and we're we're really really putting our minds and value the right things, we can solve all sorts of problems. This is something that normally this is solvable. Uh, you know, there's way we don't have to pay the debts that are being held on, on our, over our shoulders. No nation has to pay an illegitimate debt. African nations, South America, even us. If a debt didn't build anything, if it didn't create value, and it just gave a nation more enslaved to a creditor, well, then that's a form of violence. That's not really authentic. It's not tied to anything that sustains life. And in fact, if paying it is going to kill people, as, Tom, as Thomas Sankara, the, uh, the assassinated leader of, of Burkina Faso, made the point in his beautiful address in 1984, right before he was killed, if, if paying the debt is going to result in us killing our people, then the debt is not legitimate. It cannot be paid. But you cannot have just one nation like Burkina Faso in 1984 going at it individually saying, we're not going to do it. You need to have a coalition of nation states who together say in Concord, we're going to stand together. And thus far in human history, unfortunately, there haven't been many opportunities where you've had a concordance of different civilizational states and interests together on the same page saying the same thing um, that I'm saying needs to happen. At different times, but again, it wasn't just Lumumba, I'm uh, 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 You also had periods where you had people like Lopez Portillo, the president of Mexico, who also went to the United Nations and gave a brilliant speech in 1982, um, saying that, look, the IMF debt, we've already paid it back several times over. If, if the South American countries honor the debt, we're going to die. So we need to have a, a debtor's alliance that says we will protect the legitimate debt but we're going to erase a lot of debt jubilee. We'll, we're going to let those who speculated on us take their losses. And instead, we're going we're to nationalize, as Portillo was doing, we're going to nationalize the banks, we're going to nationalize the petroleum industries, and we're going to force them to now serve the growth interests of the people of Mexico. But he needed other nations as well as South America. He needed Argentina, he needed Brazil to stand with him. And at the time, due to the pressure behind the scenes, those nations promised to stand together they didn't. They left him out hanging by the dry. And Mexico was punished, right? He was ousted, and Mexico's economy was abused and punished 40 years straight to the point that the peso lost something like 5,000% of its value in 1981. And it was, it was brought under the control of the same financiers that Portillo tried to resist. So <clears throat> today we actually have something very unique. We have, for the first time in, in my knowledge, my study of history, I have not seen something as strong as what we have today as far as Russia, China, Iran, but with the, we're increasingly creating an alternative system of economic and security cooperation, but not with, not just with them, there's a, over 40 nations so far who have made their intention to join the BRICS, becoming the BRICS plus and known. It's messy. There, there's, you know, deep state operations in many of these countries. It's not a, it's not a one game, but that's a serious um, that's a serious strategic valuable point because at the end of the day if, if you get different civilizations representing different religions different ethnicities all to stay together that we're going to stand together in defiance of this empire and we're going to work together to build infrastructure together to create corridors of cooperation by investing forcing uh, the monetary system to behave according to the interests of people not through speculation but by actual investment into the real economy, well, that is going, that will, that does keep geopoliticians of the West up at night. Because empires only thrive in situations of divide to conquer. The world has to be in constant destabilization and division 
in order to be better manipulated. And we always will tend to find whether it was the, the European story of, of the last several centuries in Europe and the wars where Protestants were killing Catholics, right? And subgroups within Protestants were killing subgroups within Protestants and Christians were being, you know, herded in crusades to kill other Christians in Byzantium or Constantinople. Or whether you have Jews killing Muslims and Muslims killing Jews and, and Hindus killing Sikhs and Muslims killing Hindus. The point is, empires are always lighting fires. And they're always finding a way to get fools to think about their differences, whether racial, what we call God, whatever else, territorial, to fight each other, rather than realize, hey, we're all human. We all have the same aspirations for a better life for our kids. We all are, would prefer, if we took a survey, <laughs> regardless of what religion, we prefer to have peace and uh, abundance. But despite people's preferences as humans, you get fools to, to fall into these traps, and that's been the trend. So all that's you know, why am I saying this? I'm saying this just because I really want to paint a picture of the current sort of general dynamics shaping the world, the clash of the two possible systems. You know, we have obviously one agenda that created this crisis of derivatives, the time bomb that's pro- that's pro- provoked most of the the most brutal wars of our, of our recent history and deeper history, which is trying to say we have a solution. The solution is a new economy, a great reset. And that new economy that we want to bring online won't really have much of a place for things like nation states, because we're going to need to have something more wise than selfish nation states defining the terms of a green economy. And the new set of values will be associated with activities that will lower, ultimately, the ability to produce food, like in, in the Netherlands, right? The government of the Netherlands, who's totally on board with this World Economic Forum agenda, has made it clear that they intend to buy 30% of the farmland of the Dutch farmers, but not to make food, rather just to put it under conservation protection. And the same thing for Justin Trudeau. We have the same policy to commit to reducing fertilizer use, thus reducing also food output by a factor of 30% to meet the 2030 goals. Um, the same thing is being pushed by Biden as well in the United States, you know, around the same idea of, of taking farmland out of use of farmers and into just protective zones around this 30-30, you know, 30% of the land by, the, by 2030 will be protected. And that is, that is where some people would like to take the world, and that is where some interests want to see those, again, the irony is that the same interests who created the crisis over the dead bodies of JFK and, and his brother and, and Martin Luther King and many others, those same interests are the ones pushing the solution to the crisis that they created. Then you have the other thing I was just touching upon and alluding to very, very briefly, that you have an actual fight where a bunch of uh, leaders representing civilizational states are saying no, they don't want to go along with that, that game. They would rather a different kind of system that represents the interests of the people and the nations and the cultures that they represent. And that could be something that we could work with if we had a same government and seeing people who knew how to prioritize what is of high value, what is low value, we can see a viable real movement, a peace movement that calls for working with, instead of going to war, but working with these countries that are trying to build infrastructure in an honest way in Africa or in the Middle East or beyond or in Canada. We desperately need infrastructure for anybody who's driven on Quebec roads. They know that we, we've been neglecting things. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> instead of valuing these things, people's priorities have been really there's a lot of distraction, and that's where the question of the UFO thing, I think, takes extra value. So today, I'm going to show a video, and then another video. We're going to look at the question of, like, is this a real thing to value? Should we really take this too seriously? The government disclosure of UFOs that have been hidden from us for, for the entire Cold War, 
which is itself kind of weird that these things weren't really an issue before World War II and only right after World War II with the Cold War did all of a sudden people start seeing UFOs flying around their skies and stuff. But we're going to look at, well, where did this come from? Is this really an issue? What's the evidence that this is a PSYOP? And we're going to start with JFK. And give us some technical issues, we're going to have to talk one computer to another for videos to PowerPoint, and it'll be fine. So first, let me start with a message from John F. Kennedy in 1963, about a month before his assassination. He is the first of many chiefs of state who are scheduled to address the assembly. The probable next is Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia. Mr. Kennedy hails the pause in the Cold War while taking note of Cuba and Berlin. Then he makes a startling proposal. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Space offers no problems of sovereignty. By resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim that territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies and declared that international law and the United Nations Charter will apply. Why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union, in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure. Now, this is a useful jump-off point, because I think that Jim, the period of John F. Kennedy was probably the last most serious attempt at restoring an authentic American nationalism in the last 80 years. Um, his murder represented not just a lone gunman going at it because whatever he uh, didn't like commie. Mean, there's so many stories, right? Either you believe the, the conspiracy theory, the official one, which is that a lone gunman shot JFK um, for his own weird motives. I don't even know what is what is the official story for here. What did they say for the Hardy Oswald? What, what was his motive for killing Kennedy? As like the official story. That he's like working for Castro. He's working for Castro. That was it. Eh? Or the new one I think is he was working for the Russians because he was like mm -hmm. on some embassy telephone Castro or something in Mexico. Yeah, yeah it's all I, I read the new one. Now. Yeah, I know that he goes to the He said that he was killed by mistake by his bloodlines. He was killed by mistake by his By mistake. By mistake. Wow. I, yeah, that's embarrassing. Okay. Uh -huh. There's so many. And you know, there's so many. Um, that I, I would call it almost like there's become a fetish for, in some circles, to try to nitpick the details of different, um, infinitely expanding theories of who killed Kennedy and why. You know, whether it's the Mafia, whether it's Lyndon Johnson and the oil barons, whether it was the, uh, the Soviets, that was a big one. I think that's why Oswald was placed in the Soviet Union originally, was to create sort of a story and alibi for those who were to dig a little deeper and, and not believe the lone gunman. They were like, oh, but he was in Russia. But something is missed, and, and in the, the excessive nitpicking of details and thousands of books have been written, what's often forgotten, you know, and, and people have done good work on forensics of looking at the different triangulation of the gunshot from the prime, from the grass null, from the triangulated tree shoot, all this stuff. 
And it's useful to a certain degree, but what's often missing from the discussion completely is, well, why did it happen? What was JFK doing? What changed in American domestic and foreign policy? What changed in the world? Right? How was this tied to other things that were going on, let's say, with the CIA's murder of Patrice Lumumba, who JFK was trying to meet? What about the later CIA overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah, the Pan-Africanist who was working with Lumumba to try to create an anti-colonial system of economics for all of Africa as a continent, and who uh, JFK worked with and assisted in building the biggest hydroelectric dam in Africa's history up until today. Up until today, that was the biggest, the Volta River Dam, which to this very day has a plaque honoring the memory of JFK. He had to fight to bring America in, and American industrialists and patriots into a place where they recognize that their true self-interest would not be to just extract wealth and exploit Africa, but to help Africa develop industrial growth, science, technology, and do it together. Um, so that was overthrown. Maybe JFK's murder is tied to something like that. And sure enough, when you actually do look at, well, what did change? Um, not only was JFK calling for the extraction of U.S. involvement in Vietnam, which he was doing, he was very pissed off at the murder of the South, South uh, Vietnamese president, uh, Diem, which was also killed by a faction of the CIA. This has been proven already many times over. Um, but he's trying to extract the U.S. from involvement in Vietnam. He was trying to um, force the economy to behave according to constitutional banking standards, investing in hydroelectric dams, the same dams that Gavin Newsom is spending billions of dollars to destroy and demolish in California, were built up under JFK. In the idea today that it's, you know, the new value is preserving the rights of deserts to be left alone. <laughs> so we're pouring money into destroying the dams and destroying the food production associated with the, these dams in California with the idea that you no know, deserts have human rights. <laughs> and it's worth us spending a trillion dollars or more taking these things down. Even if it's going to mean electricity will be unaffordable now or unaccessible for many residents, for many industries that otherwise rely upon those dams to produce that electricity. But JFK was, was building a whole continental water strategy. Um, he's building also what we just saw there was an idea of breaking the rules of the Cold War. The Cold War said, no, everybody has to play according to a game of mutual assured destruction, right? A balance of terror where kids were being traumatized doing nuclear war bomb exercises in their schools under their desks every day. What did that do to the baby boomers, right? Psychologically, that was, that was trauma. Um, but at the same time, the, the whole thing was based on the idea that we had, we could never, there was no way to ever harmonize the interests of people on both sides of the Iron Curtain. They were forever, it was a forever type of war, and everything was justified. Wars in Korea, wars in Vietnam, wars in Cambodia, Laos, or beyond. Everything, working with Nazis, as we're going to come to see in a video today, that was justified. Unreconstructed Nazis that were never punched in Nuremberg. They got jobs for the CIA, with the CIA. We're going to look at some of them. They got jobs at NATO, working and managing major departments of NATO. And we're going to see some of their names very soon. But all that was justified because the fight against the communists, against the authoritarian regimes, was, was the greatest of all evils. So lesser evils were justified to stop bigger evils. But what was the good? So JFK was actually introducing the good. He said, no, we're not going to just do a balance of evil. We're going to introduce a new principle of higher self-interest that will be better to work together on things like going to space, right? Shifting the gears from building, using our science to build bombs to kill each other, to use our science to um, explore the universe. And that idea of building a space-based economy was one thing that he said, but he also said we shouldn't just go to the moon. 
He said the idea was to have a perpetual creative society, always leaping outside of the limits of growth. And there's actual speeches where JFK attacks Malthus by name, the, the, British, the British philosopher who promoted the idea of overpopulation originally. That Thomas Malthus who said we should kill babies even or promote the plague in order to keep population stable. That by name JFK actually refuted and attacked Malthus, saying that no, Malthus was just a creature of empire. He didn't realize that human beings were a species that is happy making discoveries and applying those discoveries for new technologies. So one thing that happened after JFK dies, people think, okay, well the moon landing well, that that was that must have been peak funding of government funding. Well, actually, the peak funding happened in 1965, which reached almost 4.5% of GDP was expenditures into NASA and into new space. Now, everything we have today, there's so many things we don't appreciate. The internet, GPS, um, health, medical resources, pacemakers, all sorts of things, MRIs, came from the technology that we discovered along the way to try to solve the problem. I don't want to get into a debate whether Neil Armstrong did land on the moon or not. I'm not I'm, but I cannot... What I will say is that all of the technology couldn't have happened had we not had a mission crash driver, a crash driver science program to get the job done. And it began to get cut under, as the Vietnam War was expanded, right, and our priority became now all of a sudden get more and more enmeshed in the thing JFK was trying to stop in Vietnam, the money stopped moving into R&D to science, to, to the space. And we began to immediately see a slashing under Lyndon Johnson, all the way down to it becoming less than 0.5% where it remained um, for the last few years. But by, by the time the actual, you know, the Apollo missions were occurring, from 69 to 72, when, the, when it was canceled in 73, you were down to less than 1.5% GDP, and it went down and down and down. And you can see the similar rate of increase of the military-industrial complex's budget around the same time. And people wonder, well, why, did we, why can't we go back to the moon today if we wanted to? If we're here, the capsules, the, the Saturn rockets, all of these things were all decommissioned, put into museums where they collected dust by '73. And when there were small efforts to do things like the Apollo Soyuz project to unite Russian and American scientists, it was in '76. It was immediately sabotaged. It was immediately sabotaged by those same interests like Henry Kissinger, James Schlesinger, the, the, the Minister of, of Energy of the United States, a, a professional enthusiast, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who were all overseeing the Trilateral Commission at that time, along with people like David Rockefeller, who was running the Trilateral Commission, Nelson Rockefeller, the Vice President under Gerald Ford, who nearly became President, was also overseeing this takedown and this idea that no human... America's foreign policy will now be based upon permanent war. Right? We're going to start sponsoring the Mujahideen. Mujahideen. That'll be the new way. We're going to have a new justification to entrap Russia in Afghanistan. We're going to now. That's where Al Qaeda came from. U.S. taxpayer money. Right? Operation Cyclone. That'll be the new the new way we spend our money. We're going to start now putting stuff in. We're going to focus all of our efforts into monopolizing the oil economy and tying the price of oil to the U.S. dollar. That's called the petrodollar. That's what Kissinger oversaw. And all of a sudden, the value of the U.S. dollar was no longer tied to what are you industrially creating in the real world that was measurable. It became tied to, well, what's the value of, of oil based on the spot markets, on the futures markets? What are those things? That's just where, this, where gamblers calling themselves economists go to make money with money that's not theirs. They don't care about oil. They don't care about the real economy. They care about making money. 
And so the price of oil began to fluctuate according to the whimsies of speculators. It, didn't, it was no longer tied to reality. What are you building? Same thing for the price of the U.S. dollar that everybody in the world had to have reserves of U.S. dollars to just carry out trade with each other since World War II. So that the whole system became wired now to monopolize existing um, energy resources and get people to fight while the resources are wearing down in order to create a crisis. Let's say a bubble crisis as well, because now all the, the, the speculation is going to create bubbles, and bubbles, by, the, by their definition, will only pop. It will not grow forever. Bubbles pop. And every economic bubble that's ever been created will always pop, whether by design or by accident. So that was used for economic terrorism. People like George Soros, currency speculators, had a field day, right, in this new age of deregulation. Nation states were not allowed to regulate the economy. You had to have just the free markets for shareholder value determining what the, what the economy does. And in that world, you had venture capitalists, you had hedge fund owners, like George Soros being a pioneer, who were put to work as new pirates, just destroying economic economy, uh, economies of the world that were not behaving well. Whether it was Lopez Portillo in Mexico, whether it was uh, Burkina Faso, whether it was uh, Mahathir Mohammed of, of Malaysia. It didn't matter. If you were a, a, a leader who tried to resist the rules of the IMF or the World Bank in favor of protecting your people, you would be destroyed. And the, the first line of, of destruction was the army, the armadas of currency speculators, the George Soroses. So it was a really great way to say, oh, we love capitalism, and these nations are just not governable. Africa is not governable. Asia is not governable. They're, they're just incapable of managing their own affairs. That's why they're poor. And people stop looking, well, what is the real interest? The, the, the agencies that are willfully keeping these nations enslaved and poor and weak and fighting each other, right? So that's an America we stopped seeing for a long time. Now we're at we're a place where it's sort of a reckoning moment. There, there's sort of, you could say, one last chance to sort of rediscover the better lost forgotten traditions of what Bobby Kennedy was also trying to revive as far as a spirit of constitutional self-interest that's based on the idea that we're all created equally in the image of God, both the people of America, but also people of the world. Um, <clears throat> I'll just go through one more image here. Just quickly, just to make it visceral. People say, oh, energy is so limited, we need to, you know. For those who have not seen this graph, this is a very important graph that was produced by the, uh, the U.S. Energy Research and Development Administration in 1976. So just as NASA was also being cut down, you had the what was being was occurring was the expected pathways to investments of R and D into fusion power, right? Everyone knows what fusion is, fusion energy. So that's something that we've always been told it's always thirty years away. It's always thirty years away in a cynical way. Like we'll never get it. Just be happy eating bugs, right? <laughs> live with less, live small, because fusion is just been a, a charm that always gets further away the closer we think we're getting. No, there's been constant, there's been sabotage, and it's measurable. Because the, the pathways, the four different primary pathways that the U.S. government was pushing, or the U.S. Energy Department was pushing to invest in the breakthroughs that would have brought fusion online by, in the best case scenario of investments to give, which means give the scientists the tools they need to test their ideas. Scientists can't just live in an ivory tower. They gotta test their thoughts, which means it's expensive to build a reactor to see if your, your idea if it works or not. And, that, and it doesn't just have to be tokamaks, it could be accelerators, it could be cold fusion, it could be laser fusion, it could be, there's so many pathways to, to fuse 
elements together in such a manner that we can achieve something that we know suns do by factors we don't fully understand, but we know what happens. That's why the elements are constantly being generated within the suns of the universe, within all the stars. There's constantly an emission of helium three of all sorts of elements that then fall into certain orbits, right? That we then, over time, learn we can use as human species on Earth. But we would have had, according to the, their scenarios, 1990, 1993, 98, 2005, fusion breakthroughs, depending on which which investment pathways you want. The actual funding, they made it very clear that there was a, a never fusion uh, program. And if you went below that, you will never get fusion because you will always sabotage your scientists from testing their ideas. And today, those scientists with the most cutting edge minds of the 60s and early 70s, where are they now? They're either in their late 90s or dead. And the new breeds of scientists, right, who are being pumped out of MIT, the best universities, were taught a new way of thinking about science. So they, instead of building things in the real universe and testing your thoughts, they were told, no, computer modeling. We're going to use mathematical probability, statistics, and, and that will then define what we do or don't do, what we can or cannot do, according to the rules, the science of gambling, the science of, like, maybe. And all of a sudden, everyone was relying, relying on computer modeling instead of reality to define their lives. And, of course, nothing happened. Fusion just kept never happening. So that's another thing to keep in mind. This was done because, again, you have to look at James Schlesinger. Who, was the pe- who are the people from the Trilateral Commission overseeing this? Look at the writings of James Schlesinger, who was the, the, um, in charge of America's energy policy at that time. He literally says the world is overpopulated by a factor of 90%. He literally says that pr- allowing humanity to access human power would be uh, the most irresponsible thing. Henry Kissinger, who's working with him at the Trilateral Commission, is also saying that we need to enforce a global foreign policy of depopulation under his NSSM 200 report, right? That's another thing that's being brought online in 1974, declassified in 1991. And this is all what's been creating a Pygmalion effect. You guys have all heard of the Pygmalion effect, right? So I'm, I, I'm the person who trips on my shoelaces. I trip on my shoelaces. I trip, and then you trip on your shoelaces. Um, or better yet, um, you tell somebody that they're the person who trips on their shoelaces, and then you make sure that their shoelaces are always tied to each other right, whenever they try to get up and walk. So <clears throat> it's, it's human need self-sabotage. This is, there's no reason for this. Um, yeah, there's other graphs. Anyway. So oh, let's... Maurice... For us Canadians, actually, for those who don't know, one of the, the co-founders of the World Economic Forum, who Klaus Schwab called my greatest mentor, uh, is a Canadian named Maury Strong, who was a prodigy of David Rockefeller, and was uh, assigned to play a certain role um, overseeing the creation of the Canadian International Development Agency. And for those who don't know, Canada, before him, before 1968, when he did that, Canada was actually a vanguard leader in helping nations like India and Pakistan develop nuclear power. We were the nation that helped India, both India and Pakistan develop our NRX technology for developing and harnessing the use of the atom. We were helping countries develop hydroelectric power and advanced technology. That was the policy under Deacon Baker and before that, Steve Clarence Decker Howe. And under this guy, who was also on the same selection committee that picked out Pierre Trudeau uh, to, to become a, uh, a useful idiot for the... Uh, for the thing he represented. Um, under that, the Canadian International Development Agency was brought online under a new type of program which said, we'll give, Canada will give countries a loan, like we used to, but now with the conditions 
that they don't spend it on the things they want, like infrastructure. Instead, they're going to get the loan on the condition that they build things like the University of Rwanda, which will then become a nice little brainwashing center managed by Canadian social engineers and British social engineers to train the next, the next generation of African leaders to then be reinstalled as a local controller of a policy that will then be shaped by the mining cartels like Barrett Gold, by the city of London banks. That's what this guy oversaw. And also, the obedience to the IMF and the World Bank. So Canada became increasingly, um, a, our lending became something tied to empire and destruction, preceding Kissinger and what Kissinger was doing uh, with the NSSM 200. So I just say that because he's also the godfather of the Green, uh, the Green New Deal, too. <laughs> so uh, there's that. Now, okay, back to the point today. UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> You think a healthy society, people would be talking about this sort of thing, understanding it, studying it, trying to do something about it to bring justice back to where there should be justice, where it was taken down. Instead of that, no. Whether it's Netflix videos, try to watch a movie or a show on Netflix that doesn't involve either a dystopic view of like a post-apocalyptic future that we're all just trying to survive in, try to find one. Or try to find something that doesn't involve UFO or aliens that we're doing battle with, or if we've gone to space. If we find a scenario that involves human beings in space in the future, try to find one where we don't go there to get to violence. <laughs> if there's, mm, I don't know any. Um, maybe Interstellar, but that's a bit of not. Um, and the Matt Damon Mars movie. But they're, mm-hmm. That's actually pretty, that's two anomalies in 2015. All right. <laughs> but only two, those are very, very rare. <laughs> um, otherwise, though, we, we have a lot of messaging. And for those who don't know, um, Hollywood, there's books on Hollywood and the CIA. Um, Unfortunately, most of the movies that we love that have influenced us, whether, I mean, some of them are probably, I wouldn't say every Hollywood movie, but more movies that you would realize were made into movies with the huge budgets that they were because the CIA funded them, selected scripts, chose what the values were going to be embedded as Trojan horses within the scripts, and turned them into the movies and marketed them in order to be influential. Whether it's The Matrix where people think, oh, I'm being so profound by thinking about the, the red pill, blue pill idea, right? Are you red-pilled? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a useful concept, but ultimately, the whole Matrix um, series was funded by outfits, front groups for the CIA in order to bring about a sort of a, a certain psychological effect in the people who would watch it. Um, Terminator, Terminator movies, all of this stuff had certain messages about the nature of what human beings were, what the future was, what what is AI, right? Is this something that is necessarily going to destroy us, right? Unless we maybe stay relevant maybe by merging with machines like Neuralink and CRISPR technology, right, to stay relevant in order to not go extinct like the dinosaurs did when something better came out? Well, that's what certain people like Klaus Schwab have openly said. We have to integrate with, with machinery, right, into our brains. We have to create babies <coughs> using CRISPR technologies. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, try to find somebody who's a billionaire in the top ten who's not a transhumanist. You're not going to get very far. So, okay, part of this is like, well, where does this come from? Is this, did this, all, did all these cultural motifs around UFOs emerge out of a, a need to satisfy a demand that's a naturally occurring demand, right? Because that's the idea, right? That, that culture moves according to the tastes of the people. That's why the music that we have is the music we have. That's why what's popular today in film or whatever is because people wanted it. It just is what it is, right? Nobody's programming it. Well, let's just see about that. Um, this is a fellow named uh, Tom DeLonge. DeLonge? DeLonge? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you listen to mu- music in the, in the DeLonge. 90s. DeLonge. DeLonge. Right. DeLonge. 
people I heard of a band going 182? Yeah. So Tom, Tom DeLonge is a dude who um, was a singer, lead singer, and found a new raison d'etre in his life. Around 2012, 2014, he started a, a, a new organization called To the Stars Academy. To the Stars Academy. Sounds very nice. Of Arts and Sciences. Um, he's, this is a promotional video for investors where he goes through why he did it. Um, and let's just watch this little three-minute promotional video just to get a sense of something interesting. You guys tell me what you think is interesting about this. Um, yeah, it's All right, let's watch Let's go. I was a part of the team that changed the world. My name is Tom DeLong. Um, a lot of people know me uh, from my band, Blink 182. I started that band when I was 16. As an artist, I kind of conquered, in some respect, what I wanted to do with music. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe where I got, you know, and I was like, okay, well, this is a great time to, to try and do something else. Back in 2014, I started Two Stars, a media company that would develop science fiction-based films, books, TV shows, comics, all of it. But I really wanted to make this new project more ambitious, more impactful, and to have a lasting impression on people's lives. I recognized that there were people in government that wanted to engage the public on topics that unfortunately had a stigma even though they were based in scientific fact. At the time, there was no mechanism for them to do this. Through a series of meetings, I was soon connected to a large group of U.S. government officials from the CIA, the Department of Defense, and Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. These guys were the ones involved in the secret of U.S. government programs that dealt with these subjects, and they have all taken tremendous risks to themselves and their reputations to do something that can benefit the world. They wanted to be a part of something special, to be a part of a company that could not only change the way we see ourselves, but also change the path humanity is on. We created a company called Two Stars Academy of Arts and Science. As a team, we synergistically united our strength. With the entertainment division, we create worlds, science fiction stories that inspire and transcend. We are a publisher, a merchandiser, and a production studio. We have stories about dreams, consciousness, the paranormal, UFOs, and many other themes that once used to be taboo, but after newly declassified government documents, are now proving to be absolutely real. We even have our own reality series launching this year on the History Channel, a weekly one-hour series on our company and all that we do. In the Science Division, we are building the world's first and only artificial intelligence database of unexplained events, deploying data collection teams internationally, and analyzing exotic materials originating from unidentified era phenomena. For the first time, these opportunities are real and have the potential to completely revolutionize the way we live. And here, for the first time in history, this group of spies, aerospace engineers, and secret government officials have chosen to team up with an award-winning producer to change the status quo. We want to do something more than just tell a story this time. We want to be in the story and then bring it all to life. Educating the world, creating revolutionary technology, and telling the story of the millennium, and doing it all together. There's nothing bigger. To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science is where science fiction becomes reality. I wanted to make a quick message to let you know that from the heart, I left my band and all that I was known for because this is the moment in time where I can change the world for my kids and everybody else's. I would love for you to consider doing that with us.
Uh, I have a comment about it. Yeah, 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 great. You know, there's a, a Canadian, like the Red Cross became something else, and there's this really creepy ad that says blood. It's in you to give. And it's just there's a creepy quality to it. I see it, yeah. And that's what I, I feel when I when I watch that. Yeah. It's just like there's some something very inauthentic about it. Yeah, it's, it's this weird schmarmy virtue, but it's like very thick with the virtue, right? Oh, yeah. Um, it's over, but there's something over. weird as well and just off um, about the blurring of where science fiction becomes your reality. And uh, anybody notice what was the biggest anomaly that, that stuck out in people's heads when going when listening to Tom Wilhelm describe this? Yeah. Well, two aspects. First, you you said it that the first and at the end. He says uh, he wants to make science fiction yeah. reality, right? And yeah. he says that he started the, the TTSA as as fiction creation, mm. and he wanted to bring it into the reality of people. Yes. So you, you really get the sense that, well, he goes over it quickly, but it's, it's fiction, right? And the second thing is all the involvement of uh, the intelligence agencies. <laughs> that is wicked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's very clear. The fact that he's so open, it, it, it just shows you in my mind that he's kind of naive. Like, to, to, he really thinks that he is some something hot, though, that he was tapped. He's special. He was the one selected for what he knows. Blink-182 means he was just so knowledgeable. Because he, as he describes, he really, all of his road trips between shows, he was always reading UFO books, and he felt like he was a real expert in UFOlogy. And he earned the right to be the one tapped on the shoulder by... Former directors of the CIA, <laughs> and the biological warfare department, division of, of the Department of Defense, and there's a big list when you go to their old website of like all of the different advisors. One of the big, the big participants, I mean John Podesta, that's one. <laughs> uh, John Podesta is a big one. Uh, former uh, personal uh, secretary to, to Bill Clinton, right? Uh, advised to Hillary Clinton. And when Hillary, Hillary Clinton, what was she doing in 2015 for her campaign? She was calling for UFO disclosure. Elect me president, I will disclose Area 51, everything you want to know, I will demand full disclosure, just like my husband did. Because her husband was a big pioneer in 1983, who oversaw with John Podesta the first mass release of millions of classified documents to the public. Which is, of course, for everyone who actually took the time to start looking at this giant mountain of documents, anecdotal evidence, anecdotal evidence, fuzzy images, fuzzy images, fuzzy images, and more anecdotal, anecdotal evidence. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there's going to be data dumps over the course of the next 25 years. And, of course, the, the evidence is always the same thing. Like, the, the smoking gun that's always promised is kind of like fusion. It's always 30 years away. The next data dump will be the big, the, the big smoking gun. But then why are these people from the intelligence agencies, some of the worst agencies of the world that carry out the greatest evils to humanity, the ones who really just care about our truth, us knowing the truth that has been withheld from us, and people like, there's a few uh, uh, figures. This figure here actually is going to be a big one in this story. Robert Bigelow is a uh, leader of the new space movement. I didn't know about him until uh, I looked into it. But he's a billionaire, real estate magnate, runs a bunch of cheap hotels across the USA. Big investor in parapsychology, uh, speaking to ghosts. Um, UFOlogy actually is the biggest investor to Harry Reid when Harry Reid Reed was a senator. And Harry Reid is the person who put online the Pentagon Defense um, Aerial Defense Research Unit of the Pentagon. It was funded through Larry Bigelow's money 
to Harry Reid, who brought this online, which is today behind all of the congressional investigations for you know the inquiries that are going on on CNN that we're, that we can watch, um, through this guy. <clears throat> so, what else is he doing? Well, he's a giant Pentagon contractor, kind of like Elon Musk, who's the world's the biggest private uh, contractor to the Pentagon is Elon Musk. This guy as well has provided actually kind of useful tech for at least the civilian sector, uh, you know, ISS, the International Space Station. But he's also doing this other weird stuff too at the same time. Um, multi-billionaire. What's up with that? What are these anomalies for? Like, is this a new thing? Like, did, was there ever, was there ever in history an authentic, truth-loving UFO truth movement that then got cert- taken over? Because a lot of people who who are into UFOs today will acknowledge what I said sometimes. Sometimes they'll shut down, but sometimes they'll they'll acknowledge it. But then they'll say, oh yeah, but that's because these bad guys want to take over the narrative and keep it for themselves. That's what this is all about. So one question we're going to address today is, was there ever an authentic UFO um, (coughs) seeking truth and for government conspiracies to cover this up, or, or not? So we'll ask that question, and keep in mind the theme of intelligence agents of a high level and billionaires. Keep those two themes in mind. We're going to go into, we're going to shift gears a little bit, but not too much, and we're going to jump into the second chapter of today's presentation. After that impromptu but very useful little intermission. Um, <coughs> so we left that off on the question of um, the anomaly. Is there was there ever a time where we had an authentic UFO truth movement and an actual genuine agenda by governments to classify and keep secret um, intercommunication with some form of extraterrestrial being? Of course, if I listen to the congressional meetings and even um, many of the experts who represent high powers within the Pentagon, I would have to believe, if I believe what the media tells me, that off-world vehicles not made of this earth have been used by the American government, um, I would have to believe that uh, I have to build a lot of stuff. So, again, <laughs> is, is, there, is, there, is it just now that we have intelligence agencies and billionaires co-opting the UFO truth movement? Or has it always been an artificial construct to create new folklore by which we could be better manipulated before and during the Cold War and after? So we're going to address some of that. Now that's just some of the, the figures we met from the Rogues Gallery featuring Tom Delange and John Podesta there in the center of the group five. And John Podesta, you know, promoting the Two Stars Academy, um, which gets really, really all over the place. Now, Anybody know who this old guy is with the funny hat? David Rockefeller. Not? Lawrence Rockefeller. Yeah. Brother of. Yeah, Lawrence Rockefeller. Lawrence. There's four uh, grandchildren of John D. Rockefeller. Nelson, John... Sorry, Nelson, David, Lawrence, and Stephen. This is 1993. The Clintons had just been uh, brought into the White House. And this is the Rockefeller Ranch, Lawrence Rockefeller's personal ranch, featuring his book on UFO disclosure. Lawrence Rockefeller, up until then, had mostly been known as one of the big patrons of parapsychology and drug uh, psychedelics research from the 1970s and 80s. 
Um, we're going to look at some of that work that he did in the 70s and 80s, which is coming, being brought back into play, especially in a big way today with the mass deregulation and um, uh, legalization of everything on the market, right? Especially BC is one test case, but there's, there's a plan to, to expand the BC program much more widely um, and tie it into some forms of new spirituality that haven't really been too dominant in, in most of human history. This idea that our spiritualism can be tied to um, doors of perception being opened through the help of psychedelics that open up pathways in the mind. Um, psilocybin, DMT, uh, heroin, you name it. it. It's all open for spiritual experience and this new type of reform of, um, of traditional religious institutions. That's the thing that's being, we're going to talk about, a bit about that later on. But so that, up until then, that's really what he was doing. And then he did something different in 1991. He created something, he expanded his, uh, his um, repertoire of what he, paid, what, he, what he finances with his billions to include the, the, a new organization that was designed to unite all of the different UFO uh, truth groups around the world under a more controllable, centralized umbrella. And the name for that became... Can you guess any of that? <laughs> the Disclosure Project? The Disclosure Project. The Disclosure Project came with he created. Um, it was a Rockefeller initiative, and Bill Clinton, John Podesta was originally recruited into the idea of... Um, of the Disclosure Project, and he gave speeches starting in 2001 on the need to massively declassify UFO research Roswell, crop circles, you, you name it, uh, mutilated cows and fields in the 70s. Um, I, already brought, I already brought up earlier how Hillary made that a, a campaign platform and promise. Brad and Sherry Steiger wrote a book called Conspiracy and Secret Societies in 2012, it's a decent book, um, decent citations, and she makes the point, or they make the point, that quote, Lawrence, Lawrence also funded the Green Earth Foundation, headed by Terence McKenna, who traveled the globe collecting psychoactive plants, which he was permitted to cultivate in Hawaii. McKenna theorized that Aboriginal cultures have used these substances to induce a psychic link with extraterrestrials. So that was what um, a Lawrence Rockefeller project under this guy named McKenna promoted as a, as a thesis. Um, <clears throat> There's a figure named Graham Hancock today who's very much popularized. He has his own Netflix shows. Netflix, by the way, is run by one of the grandsons of uh, Edward Bernays. Not a coincidence, the godfather of modern social engineering. Um, Freud's, Freud's, nep- uh, Freud's nephew, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's, whatever you see on Netflix, you always have to wonder why, why is this being promoted to me? Why is this particular story being promoted to my zeitgeist that I'm a part of at this moment in time? Is there a reason or is it just my entertainment? Um, so, okay, secondly, with extraterrestrials through psychedelics, the Human Potential Foundation, which is an outgrowth of Esalen Institute, which itself came out of British Tavistockian program set up during, to investigate World War I, uh, shocked uh, people who suffered from shell shock. Shell shock. People who were suffering from shell shock were investigated as human guinea after World War I. PTSD. PTSD, as it later became known as, yeah. Um, and the Tavistock Clinic was set up with its institute to explore the benefits, the, the interesting side effects that would occur by noticing that all of these people were much more susceptible to suggestion, much more malleable, uh, much more inclined to compartmentalize traumatic memories that they would then be that could then be severed off from their conscious memory and then activated at different times. Kind of like what we saw with the Manchurian Candidate projects that came out during the CIA MPLTRA operations. It's all part of the same, same thing. So the Human Potential Foundation 
was created as an outgrowth of this was primarily funded by Lawrence Rockefeller, who encouraged a study of alternative religious and psychiatric psychological paradigms. Similarly, Lawrence cooperated closely with the BSW Foundation, which I actually don't know uh, headed by a wealthy New Yorker, we're just going to skip that part, who shared his, his belief that ETs are benevolent and have come to help the human species ascend the evolutionary ladder more rapidly. Now again, whether or not Lawrence actually believed that which he says he believed is another story. But that's one of the ideas. You know, either the aliens are there to destroy us, and we all have to um, unite under some form of world government to defend ourselves from the threat of alien beings, or they're here to save us from ourselves. And uh, and maybe Jesus was an alien. Maybe Muhammad was an alien. Maybe maybe that's actually what the, the big the big story is going to be as we reform our religious institutions to be more more uh, acceptable to let's say those who put online things like the Great Narrative Project. The Great Narrative Project is something. Um, The Great Narrative Project came out of the World Economic Forum last year by Klaus Schwab, and it professes to create new stories, new mythologies for us to um, organize ourselves around in the post-Great Reset Age. Because apparently the idea of Judeo-Christian values and right and wrong and male-female, those are obsolete value systems that won't have a place in the type of proper new clean age that they want to bring online. So how does this play into that? I'll let your minds just think about that for a bit. So again, Lawrence Rockefeller. By the way, Lawrence Rockefeller's other brother that I didn't mention. Yet, so earlier on in part one, I mentioned okay, we have David Rockefeller who founded the Trilateral Commission, right, with Kissinger and that whole thing that, that took over JFK's dead body and his brother. We had Nelson Rockefeller, who was the, the vice president under Ford, who nearly became president had Charles Manson's di- a disciple been successful in her attempt to kill Gerald Ford which just missed miss him by like a centimeter in 1977, at that point, or 76, at that point, uh, Nelson Rockefeller would have been president. A, a, a trilateral commission leader would have been, now does, does that mean that Gerald Ford is a good guy? No, I'm not saying that at all. However, the level of and scope of evil that Nelson Rockefeller represented as a deep, self-aware creature of the machine was certainly much worse. Just like you could say was Reagan, when Reagan nearly died, by another MK Ultra uh, poor kid Inkley, right? Who was deployed to kill what a fixation with was it Jody Foster now? I'm not sure Jody Foster. Yeah. yeah. Um, this kid was through psychiatric clinics his, his whole life. And when he was deployed to kill Reagan, Reagan nearly died, right? He almost bled out. And uh, who would have been president in nineteen eighty one? Bush. Bush Senior, right? Former CIA director of Trilateral Commission Bush. Inkley and the Bushes were connected as well. And that's the thing, right? And then the Hickley family and the Bush family are like neighbors, lifelong family friends doing dinner parties with each other. That's another weird thing. A lot of them are related. A lot of them are related. Yeah, a lot of like, yeah, we can talk about that later. <laughs> I was going to bring up the, the speech that Reagan made about world cooperation, uh, how an alien invasion would bring the world together. Kind of, and more or less alluded to that. Yeah, Reagan, Reagan was a Hollywood creature. Uh, yeah. He was like, uh, I think he was, the way I think about him is like one of these simple-minded, 
good people who really believe in some of the big stupid stories that are designed for stupid people, and he became uh, a useful tool, mm -hmm. but not really, he wasn't of the, the caliber of technocratic um, persona that they would prefer to have in that type of position. Yeah. Um, or at least, a, but he was very pliable. But he would also step out of line too, which is I think why they didn't want to eliminate him on several occasions, because he also, in his better moments, uh, made a very similar Kennedy-like speech in 1983, yeah. where he called for the Russians and the Americans to work together to reform our military science into a cooperative policy of building new types of technology based on, on fusion power, yeah. that would power high-intensity lasers, that could then be jointly controlled by both sides of the Iron Curtain. It wasn't unilateral. And then that could deactivate any nuclear weapon launched anywhere in the world, making strategic, uh, like nuclear war strategically unviable. Yeah. And by him doing it that way, he was working with this guy Lyndon LaRouche at the time, who he, who was like, that's who like, sold him on the idea of strategic value. He was never supposed to give that speech. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, he never really got back his wits. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like the popularizer that you kind of wheel in and wheel out when you don't, mm -hmm. when you don't need Well, it. sometimes fall out of character, yeah. but generally be usable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but all I have to say is, so Boris Rockfield, the, the fourth brother, who's interesting to this story, Remember how I was bringing up earlier on Maury Strong? At the same time as the, the Disclosure Project is being created, 1992-93, you have what's, what's called the Earth Charter. The Earth Charter is being drafted by Maury Strong, um, Mikhail Gorbachev, right, and Stephen Rockefeller. Stephen Rockefeller is the one who's overseeing the committee that's drafting the Earth Charter as a new type of charter to... Um, in, replace the UN Charter. Because the UN Charter, the logic is, well, it still gives too much power to nation states as sovereign entities to have a dominant role in deciding what policy becomes act active, which is not compatible with the post-national world order that they want to bring about. Also, the UN Charter makes it illegal to have a war of aggression from one country to another. That's problematic. So there's been an effort to try to... Um, both on the one hand corrupt the UN, and a lot of people who are a little bit overly simplistic will tend to see the UN as just a bad and not see that it's been corrupted to be bad, but there's also something viable and good, which is why they get confused when they hear like John F. Kennedy or Putin or Xi Jinping say we need to respect the UN Charter. They're like, look, JFK and Putin and Xi Jinping are all globalist evil doers. No, it's overly simplistic. There's, there's more nuance that's often missed in that, that fight. But the Earth Charter was an idea that, you know, we all have to get rid of nation-states to protect Earth because nations are selfish. We, we destroy nation when we allow nations. So if we got rid of those things, then we could have a new type of global government protecting Earth as the sole law, which seems good on the surface, if, especially if you just look at the amount of destruction we've done to nature. You're like, well, maybe that's a good idea. But then, again, people who think that way tend to miss the fact that those who carried out the policies of natural destruction were consciously doing it. Like, it wasn't the natural effect of nations or humans being being uh, destructed. It's, there was a, a conscious effort to do this unnatural thing. So, Stephen Rockefeller working with Maury Strong and uh, Gorbachev uh, to bring on the Earth Charter. Lawrence Rockefeller had his assignment. So again, does, does Lawrence Rockefeller really care about the truth? Does, that's his passion? Or is he maybe just taking the truth that was, that was legitimate in the UFO truth group and subverting it before Harry Reid and, and, and Robert Bigelow and Two of the Stars Academy, maybe that's when it got corrupted. But before that, maybe it was legitimate. Naomi Klein, 
dude who's a mediocre uh, researcher, but this book was good, and it had like 30 other people she was working with, as you pointed out, um, which maybe explains why there's more usefulness in it. In chapter two, she describes an interesting event that occurred in Montreal at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And she describes this figure of um, Sir Henry Tizard. Anybody know Sir Henry Tizard? The Tizard Commission? Okay. So she's describing this, this character who's the, uh, is the chief uh, advisor of science for Winston Churchill. He's the head of the Ministry, the, uh, the Royal uh, Air Force, and the Ministry of Science for the, for the UK government in World War II. He's the, um, the chief of science um, to the United States for the Royal Academy of Sciences. He works at the embassy of the British ambassador, Lord Lothian, who's a roundtable Cecil Rhodes freak in 1940-41, setting up what's called the, uh, the Tizard Commission, which is part of an integration of British and U.S. science policy and technology that is needed to bring the U.S. into World War II, which the U.S. is still pushing back on a little bit. The, the formulation of the Manhattan Project, the compartmentalization of the systems, the systems of control that became the Manhattan Project, where nobody was really allowed to know what other groups were doing in the scientific community, because everything was so classified, right? That the idea was, okay, well, let's just make everybody specialists in their little domain, so only a small nurse vendor would know what the whole was doing. That was Tizard who did the loudest work at educating Americans on how to do secret science. And he helped also create a, um, a program that integrated the private military sector, private contractors, with the official branches of intelligence and the government. That's also a guy who pioneered that great innovation. <laughs> so Naomi Klein points out, one of the most controversial meetings that Tizard had, this is after World War II, to attend in his capacity as chair of the National Research Commission would only emerge many years later with the declassification of CIA documents, namely a meeting on June 1st, 1951 at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Montreal, Canada between Kizard, Oman Salant, chairman of Canada's Defense Research and Development Agency, and representatives of the CIA to discuss brainwashing. That's interesting. Okay. Okay, here's just some quick stats. So he's the chairman of the Defense Research Policy Committee, 41-49, UK Ministry of Defense, Foreign Secretary to the British Royal Society. He's also the head of uh, Magdalena College in Oxford, where they process a lot of road scholars like Bill Clinton, uh, Stuart Talbot. Head of the UK Ministry of Defense Flying Saucer Working Group, 1949-50. That's weird, too. So... He is on the form the, the the same meeting that initiated something called MK Ultra. Who here does not know what MK Ultra is? Negative. Who does not know what MK Ultra is? Never heard of MK Ultra. Everyone's heard of MK Ultra. That is wonderful. Okay. That's great. <laughs> so he's on the same group that organizes that, and at the same time he's heading the UK Flying Saucer Working Group, which is the first major taxpayer funded organization openly investigating flying saucer phenomenon that people coming after World War II really starting in 1947, specifically 47 is the date, in April, that we start seeing that people start reporting that in the night sky, some places in Britain, a lot of places around New Mexico, around U.S. military bases usually, weird things flying that they can't account for that they report to the police. 
uh, pilots sometimes working with, with the Air Force are looking out the window and they see something really weird flying that they can't account for. They report to their superiors. They don't have security clearance, so how would they know? So, Tizard sets up this group. Why does he set up this group? Well, Prince Philip, when he died, 2021, it became publicly known that he had a lifelong fixation with UFO truth. And he, um, as it says here, Prince Philip, this is uh, 2020, I guess, already 40, I guess, huh? Uh, obsessed with aliens and UFOs since Mount Batson revealed details of unexplained encounter. That's just an interesting weird anomaly. Um, as it turns out, Prince Philip was organized by uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, who's sort of his, um, well, is a relentless pedophile <laughs> who oversaw the partitioning of India and Pakistan back in 1946. He was also the, uh, the, the supreme allied commander during World War II of the Pacific Forces, overseeing Indochina, NATO, uh, Indochina, uh, Vietnam, uh, India, like the whole Pacific was his territory during World War II. Yeah. What did that? Yeah, S-E-A-C. Thank you. What's the temple? I only know the joke, saving limbs and the colonies. <laughs> but I forgot the official. But, but it was to yeah, recolonize Asia after uh, World War II. Right. Yeah, because and that was part of his assignment. Like all of the the Asian countries had sacrificed so much, right, during World War II that they expected to have, just like many African and other countries who were colonialized, some independence that they earned, right? To fight for freedom against fascism. But instead of that, they were given as where it was impossible to stop the British Empire, allow them to have some political independence, but the economic independence needed to, to make that meaningful was never permitted. So uh, Lord Mountbatten played a big role in that. That's the whole division of, of Pakistan and India in order to spark the, the, the constant wars between Muslims and Hindus and Hindus and Sikhs and everything else in between as part of the never-ending war. It's a party going on out there. Oh, it's literally... Okay, it's... They know you're here. It's a demonstration. It's a demonstration. No, it's a sort of a gay pride thing going on. I have no idea. It's a gay radio. Oh, that's good. We're talking about social engineering, right? Because it's all about So, um, okay. So, Mountbatten said, in 1950... In his, uh, this recorded in his biography by Philip Zivel. He describes how Mulbatten is the one who provoked Sir Henry Tizer to create the Flying Saucer Working Group in 1949 in Britain. Mulbatten said, the fact that they, that is they the aliens, can hover and accelerate away from the Earth and gravity again, and even revolve around a V2, a V2 rocket in America, shows that they are far ahead of us, us humans. If they really came over in a big way, that might settle the capitalist communist war. If the human race wishes to survive, they must band together. More basic. So, <clears throat> coming out of this, Prince Philip, now Mobatten also, he, uh, he registers, he popularizes the UFOs by, by giving tons of interviews about how his, uh, his, his butler 
saw a, a, a silver UFO descend upon their mansion in some castle that they live in um, that landed in the backyard. The butler was just so believable that Mumbai was persuaded and he started giving interviews around the world saying how this is actually happening. He's the one who said, okay, with Cesar, start the UFO working group uh, and, and write a report. So this, this report um, was very inconclusive. It said a lot of the observations are, are underdefined, but there's a few that are. Um, but we have to now create a new type of organizational unit within the British and American military to report, so that, that especially Air Force pilots can report on weird things that they see, and civilians can report on weird things decentralized. And then we'll, 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 we'll be able to come up with scientific analysis after that. Now that report was made public the same uh, month that he was initiating MK Ultra on brainwashing of people. Now in, in Naomi Klein's work, she makes a very good point that whether it's you and Cameron in, Mont- in Montreal carrying out you know human guinea pig experiments using psychedelics, this is where LSD 25 came from, right? The silo siding project overseen by Sidney Gottlieb at Harvard, which created Timothy Leary, mm-hmm. which created the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. Who was a human guinea pig in Harvard being processed for two years? All of this stuff um, <clears throat> was done as, as Klein or whoever she's working with in the book make the point, not just to see how they could consciously depattern the, the mind of people that they then modeled as computer software. Because the idea was the human mind is like um, a blank slate to be programmed with linear computer like binary systems. That is all the mind is. That's what they said. And that's how we can understand the human mind. And then by depatterning, we could cause then a uh, sort of a reset of the human individual, but also the human group, and also the human nation, like nations. So the idea is to always get towards like resetting nations. Around, we discovered trauma is very useful, shock therapy, that's the shock doctrine, right? So what we've done to Russia was constantly done to shock and traumatize the people so that they would be more malleable to a new type of culture that could be brought online by those who created trauma. They did it with, with Pinochet and Chile, right? By killing millions and millions of young people, intellectuals, people who were resistant to the Kissinger takeover of Chile in the 70s. That was called shock therapy to make people, the idea was more pliable. They never actually figured out exactly how this works because, of course, they're denying the existence of the soul. They're, they're, these are people who are pure positivist materialists in the sense that they see the human as just as some total of our ele- electrical and chemical makeup. They don't believe in a soul freedom, justice, so they don't, they're not meaningful because you can't model them in a binary computer model, so it doesn't exist. They think of us as robots, automaton. But so, she makes, she's very good, in, and I really recommend reading the first four chapters of this book, because it does get across how they then expanded that to whole nations, which is always the point. There's a few people in this rogues gallery that are of interest here. Um, JFK fired three leading CIA operatives in 1960, I want to say 61, Cynthia, am I right? Or 62? I think it's December 61, yes. Yeah, close enough to Bay of Pigs disaster. Alan Bellis was one of them. Richard Bissell was the other one. He was the, uh, Richard, Alan Bellis was the CIA director from 53 to 61, who was part of the meetings that created uh, MKUltra. Um, Richard Bissell 
was also fired. Cassell was the figure who was the top dog under uh, working with Frank Wisner at the OPC, OPC, which is the Office of Policy Coordination. Yeah. Well, you have it right there too on your side. Aha! The Office of Policy <laughs> Coordination, Psychological Warfare uh, Branch of the CIA. So, <clears throat> Richard Bissell is in charge of that. He's assigned uh, throughout the 50s to carry out an operation um, that involves, it's called executive action. It means killing or overthrowing government leaders who are not useful to the CIA or who are trying to protect their people. Patrice Lumumba becomes a target of this. Uh, we have uh, the, the head of the Dominican Republic president, whose name I'm forgetting, um, uh, Guatemala, the, the president of Guatemala, Arraya, Want help. President of Guatemala. No? Okay. <laughs> um, I'll get it for you. I also forgot. I got that. it. Okay. Um, Jacobo Arbenz, 1954, Guatemala. Yeah. Rafael Trujillo from Dominican Republic, also overthrown, killed. Uh, General Al Karim Qasem in Iraq. Uh, the South Vietnamese uh, President Diem. Um, JFK, also overthrown, killed by this very operation uh, under executive action. Bissell was also in charge with Dulles of the Bay of Pace. That was initiated under Eisenhower. JFK actually, despite the popularized fiction that he was behind it, actually didn't even know about it until later on. Cynthia wrote a whole essay on this. It's thorough and it's good. He's falsely accused. But when he discovered the nature of this, this insane thing, especially things like Operation Mongoose, um, which we'll say something about, <clears throat> There were several scenarios being presented to kill Castro. Because Castro, what did he do? Just like Arbenz, he was like nationalizing things, like whole systems that were formerly controlled by United Fruit, the casino uh, entities that were under like uh, Mayor Lansky's operation. Mayor Lansky being a, a key figure in the entire creation of the drug organized crime syndicates of North America, as well as Sicily. Sicily, of course. No, he's a Jewish monkey guy. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Anyway, the whole creation of the Mafia, from the Bronfmans all the way to Marilansky and everything, was all synthetically created in order to, to promote an entire new type of system of controls. Both like they did in the same thing they did for the Chinese Opium War. So that's what was running Cuba before Castro kicked them out. So Castro had to go. And there were a few scenarios being set up. Some, one involved Sidney Gottlieb promoting, uh, splicing one of his cigars with LSD and filming it on public to have the population lose faith. Another one was outright hits using like organized um, groupings of Cuban exiles who would be working with intelligence operatives. That's what the cell was in charge of to kill Castro to shoot him from several triangulated directions. So they had a whole network built up. <coughs> um, there was another figure here too, played a direct role. General Charles Cabell, also fired by, J by JFK around that same time, and around the same day, he was basically told, "You're not, <laughs> you're not going to be working for us anymore." And he was deputy director of the CIA from 53 to 62. Um, now, Cabell, two things of interest here. Cabell is assigned, in my, in my analysis, this is taking this Basically, Sir Henry Bizarre, uh, Tizard, uh, after his publication in 50, calls for now new organizations to investigate UFO phenomenon. That is taken up in a series with Project Blue Book, initiated by Charles Cabell in 1952, that stays in operation until 1969. Um, 
Charles Cabell's brother is the mayor of Dallas, Texas, the day that JFK is murdered. Um, Charles Cabell is also fired for JFK, by JFK because he was working with the other trio, as a trio, to kill Castro and to do it in a really, really illegal way. The other figure here is Roscoe Hillencoter, CIA director from 4750, and we're going to see something about uh, what, why he and this other fellow, who has a little bit of Masonic gear as a uh, Maryland Freemason Grandmaster, um, Joseph Ryman III, yeah, who also works very closely with the Office for Policy Coordination, and does take part in the Cuban uh, disaster of the Bay of Pigs. One of the recently declassified uh, pieces of evidence that is of very high use as far as the UFO data dumps is that in 1954, the CIA had put forth a, a classified uh, assessment under Alan Dulles and Cabell and uh, Bissell to uh, overthrow the, well, as part of the plan to overthrow our bends in Guatemala. One of the scenarios involved, if possible, fabricate a big human interest story like a flunk with flying saucers, birth of sex puppets in remote areas to take the play away. <laughs> So basically, to distract people while you're killing their government, their, their leader, they're, you're going to distract them with like some image of UFOs or something else. Yeah. Since you brought to my attention the figure of Edward Lansdale, who's a real psych job jarhead nutter, um, <laughs> high-level CIA guy. People can look at his Wikipedia bio. I mean, this guy is known as a pioneer in covert operations. He used British innovation, actually, because the British had innovated this technique of profiling like Afghan tribes in the 1920s and would play uh, through speakers, through planes flying over the tribes, um, certain messages saying God uh, wants you to attack some other grouping or whatever, and it worked. It worked pretty well, and, and it was catered to the local tribal prejudices, right? But he, he pioneered this in application to the Philippines, where uh, there was a, what's called a Hukbalaka rebellion of socialist, sort of a, a socialist leaning grouping to resist the CIA pawns in the Philippines. And his, he was sent there to profile the, the different prejudices of the local folklores of the Philippines, one of which involved the belief in Aspines, blood sucking vampire demons. That's just part of like a centuries long cultural belief of those people. And he was able to then uh, assign his his hit teams to uh, kill, kidnap, and murder um, various people, civilians, sometimes sometimes they're fighters, but often civilians, and put, like, teeth marks into them, drain them of blood, and then hang them upside down as psychological warfare for the, for the actual guerrillas fighting against the CIA outfit, which freaked them out sufficiently that it was, it was very successful, actually, at putting down the thing. And then he did the same sort of thing in Vietnam. Isn't that basically the film uh, Predator? I guess so. Yeah, it looks a lot like it. I mean, the, the the alien in Predator hangs uh, the his prey upside yeah, I guess down. Might have been inspired yeah. by it. Was nice day, I guess. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, and he was he oversaw JFK. Um, really fought him because he was the guy even advising the French in uh, South Vietnam in Indochina in the 1950s for several years. He was on the ground advising the French government of how you can keep your colonies which Charles de Gaulle finally put a total end to, along with colonies in Algeria. 
Um, and Charles de Gaulle suffered by this uh, this outfit that was trying to kill that they actually tried to kill de Gaulle like thirty times. De Gaulle survived thirty assassination attempts because of his defiance of empire and trying to turn France back into an authentic nation state without uh, colonies. So this guy was on the ground and he stayed on the ground and JFK um, forced his resignation, but he soon got his old job back and was sent back to Vietnam in 1965, where he remained overseeing the whole Vietnam War. Now, one of the things about his approach, his offering to Operation Mongoose to overthrow Castro, was the idea of what's it called? Elimination by illumination. Elimination by illumination. <laughs> elimination by illumination. Okay. And limit, so for people today they might have seen images of like very very realistic looking holography um, that is getting quite advanced, right? Where it does look like some incredible three dimensional physical things that are projected into the night sky. Holographic technology is getting quite advanced, but they were already more cutting edge than a lot of people realizing back then. He had this whole idea of projecting to the night sky holograms um, or early stage holograms or at least lights, very intensive lights portraying the idea of the, of the second coming of Christ from the, the heavens that would send out messaging through speakers that Christ disapproves of Castro and wants the people to overthrow him. Um, and he describes in his own words, quote, uh, I thought that the people of Cuba could be convinced through rumors that the second coming was at hand if only the satanic Castro were overthrown. That <coughs> was uh, not accepted. <laughs> nor, was it, nor were any of these projects accepted by JFK and his brother, um, including Operation North Woods, which again, Operation North Woods, for those who don't know, was an offering made by Lyman Lemnitzer, um, who was very, very high up as the head of the, the Joint Chiefs of America, who, which proposed basically shooting down a civilian aircraft supposedly filled with Americans and then blaming it on Castro as an excuse to do an invasion of Cuba. Now, Lyman Lemnitzer was also told around the same time in 1962, you're not welcome here by, by uh, Kennedy, and he was yet to get a new job, which he only uh, got his revenge on after Kennedy was killed. No, he was hired by NATO. He was hired by NATO! That was yeah. it! A few <laughs> months later, two months or so later, or a month later, he was hired by NATO. He was hired by NATO. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> There you go. Okay, so you have all of these, these creatures doing um, psychological warfare on the people. Now, the same 1950s, right, just as, as Tizard is producing his flying saucer working group report to the U.S. setting up MKUltra, you have Rancor, Rand Corporation's um, uh, report to the Air Force and CIA, 1950, April 14th, called The Exploitation of Superstitions for Purposes of Psychological Warfare. Um, where they say, and I have a full PDF if anybody wants it, what types of superstitions, uh, superstitions, sorry, what types of superstitious appeals will it be best adapted to the various audiences to be propagandized? A study of local superstitions is related to popular, in popular folklore might be profitable in providing answers to these questions. It seems likely that superstitions flourish in an, in an atmosphere of tension and insecurity. Think again about the type of situation of tension of an economic collapse or war, which is being prepared for people that, like us, like the world. And what what sort of ideas would people be susceptible to through emotional despair that they wouldn't if they if things were prosperous and things were stable, right? There's a different psychological state when you're when you're in a state of terror and fear that you become susceptible to. 
what superstitions are peculiar to Eastern Europeans, the Russians, to the various nationalities of the Soviet Union? What superstitions are prevalent among peasants, among combat troops, or airmen, among civilians? What evidence is there that given members of the enemy elite are addicted to certain kinds of superstitions? What evidence is there that some types of superstitions lose their credibility after enjoying a brief vote? So they're really treating human beings like, like, like an anthropologist would treat animals or in a zoo, right? Um, now, one of the weird things is that the Americans had two other reports, Project Grudge and Project uh, um, Science, 1947 and 49, that produced their own reports that basically said um, to ignore uh, ignore the, um, the issue of, of alien encounters. It's not worth it. Don't report it. And that became sort of the official story, at least for the outward public, that the U.S. government is not to accept the idea that there are any extraterrestrial beings. However, just to say how we're being fucked with, um, the Air Force themselves, the, the spokesman for the Air Force, then at the same time as they're publishing this official story for the public that, that there are no such things as aliens, gives an interview to Life magazine run by Henry Luce, a drug-promoting MK Ultra publisher for Time magazine who put like, Mussolini and Hitler on as their man of the year, like... 18 times, like it's crazy. Um, that Henry Luce, who's behind the fascist push to kill Roosevelt and get a fascist government in America in the 30s, that Henry Luce, who had the original Zapruder film, who owned the original Zapruder film that was kept in their vaults for five years so nobody could see it, that proved that JFK was shot from the front instead of from the back. That Henry Luce assigns one of his lead reporters to have a, a, a sit down meeting with the spokesman of the U.S. Air Force. In April 7, 1952, I got the whole article called Have We Visitors from Space, in which they, they, they summarize, oh, it's a very long article, very long interview, the key points that the U.S. Air Force representative makes is that, number one, discs, discs cylinders, and similar objects of geometrical form, luminous quality, and solid nature for several years have been, and may now be, actually present in the atmosphere of the Earth. Number two, Globes of green fire also, of a brightness more intense than the full moons, have frequently passed through the skies. Number three, these objects cannot be explained by present science as natural phenomena, but solely as artificial devices created and operated by high intelligence. What the fuck is that? Number four, finally, no power plant known or projected on Earth could account for the performance of these devices. What the hell is the American people supposed to think when the, the head of the Air Force gives an interview saying that there are these objects, there are cylinders, there are, there are these up to their glow, but nothing on Earth could possibly account for them. But they were done by high intelligence, but not Earthly. You have this with the, with the in World War II, with the food fighters. Food fighters. Yeah. 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 These strange things that would, that would like trail the uh, US or, yeah. or Japanese jets, right? Yeah. So there's obviously stuff going on that's being that people are seeing that's legit, but then how do they interpret what they're seeing? The National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. Okay, so I brought up here of our rogues gallery um, these two very interesting figures. Um, so Bessel, by the way, I forgot to mention, um, is in charge of, a, of something called Area 51. <laughs> Area 51 is run by Richard Bissell. And we've got a nice hotel there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so Bissell, that's his thing. That's 
that's a weird connection. So, but here for this story, for the next part, Joseph Bryan III and uh, Roscoe Hillencoater are two founding members of the first and biggest and influential civilian UFO disclosure agency called the National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, NICAP. I always forget his name. Joseph Ryan III. It's such a banal, normal name that I can never remember it. <laughs> now, huh? It's two first names, right? Like, this, this is right, this is absurd. <laughs> so, in the Sunday Star, August 7, 1966, there's an article, Flying Saucers Again, Do You Believe in Them, where uh, Joseph Ryan III is interviewed at length. Who, by the way, as I discovered from this, this article, is also a former member of the staff of General Boris Norstad, the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I didn't know that. So, <clears throat> this guy, OPC, and working with Dulles, UFO investigator, the stated position of one of the most highly qualified members of its board of governors, Joseph Bryan III, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, former special assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force, and former member of the General Staff of Norstad, then Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, says, quote, it is my opinion that the UFOs reported by competent observers are devices under intelligent control, that their speeds, maneuvers, and other technical evidence prove them superior to any aircraft or space devices now produced on the Earth, and that these UFOs are interplanetary devices systematically observing the Earth, either man or under remote control, or maybe both. Okay. Okay. CIA sociopath making basically very clear these are obviously intergalactic beings observing us um, that's what it is now this group the other, the other founding member is uh, Roscoe Hillencoder who is another CIA the head of the CIA himself for three years and staffed with, with CIA operatives and it is it is the thing that that is behind a lot of the the cultivation of mass opinion that what you're seeing, but so then what are you seeing? What are people seeing? They are seeing something. There are cows showing up mutilated in, in farms. There are crop circles. That's something that is seen. Um, now obviously they're not all caused by the same thing. There are definitely things floating around. There are people who really probably would pass a lie detector test thinking that they've been alien probed and, and investigated by something that they think abduct, abducted them. But what is it? What's going on? Well, what's happening after World War II? You have German rocket scientists who are being absorbed into the U.S. military-industrial complex. These are the, the Horton brothers, as two of many uh, German rocket scientists who are working on creating flying discs. Um, these are just a couple of examples of some of the discs. The, S, the SAC AS-60 was developed by the Horton brothers. It's one type of one of many designs of flying discs uh, by the by German aerospace. It wasn't just Werner von Braun working on. Uh, the B-2 rocket. There was a lot of other scientists who were all absorbed. And then the thing is, is now all of a sudden the Cold War. So everything's classified under secrecy. So nobody's allowed to know anything that's going on in the secret layers of U.S. military intelligence. You have people like Victor Schauberger, a brilliant Austrian scientist who's doing incredible work on, uh, on not only like water flows and how water can induce, under certain uh, conditions, electric currents, but also magnetic fields that if you can organize, and these are declassified uh, specs from his work in Germany, 
you can actually create what he calls, and I don't fully understand this, but um, implosion technology, instead of like combustion engines that burn and that, that combust to make pistons move inside of an engine, there's a, a, an approach he was taking with a whole network of scientists around him that involves suctioning uh, water currents or water through spiral type of uh, copper uh, tubings that also involves certain flows of electricity but that involve, that would allow for the levitation of very heavy um, saucer-like shapes. Some very, very big as far as some of the secondary reports are concerned, up to like 50 meters in some cases in, in, in diameter. That could travel at very, very intensively high speeds and, uh, and very, very high in the air up to like 30, 40,000 meters in the air, uh, feet in the air. Anti-gravity. I don't really know. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not proficient in that. Yeah. But, you know, it certainly sounds kind of like that. In 1954, yeah. uh, all anti-gravitic papers, yeah. studies, publicized stuff, yeah. disappeared. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, here's the interesting thing that links it into Canada. Because after World War II, Victor Schomburg <coughs> is brought to Canada by Avro Arrow. That was created by C.D. Howe. C.D. Howe's a pretty good guy. But now, all of a sudden, it's the Cold War. And he's brought in under the proposition that he can get investment to help not only develop uh, his tech, but to do it in a way that would be for civilian use, as Avro Arrow was building the, the world's first hypersonic jets. Now, unfortunately, the business model used was that these were needed to drop a bomb on, on the Soviet Union. So, you know, when the ICBMs were innovated, all of a sudden, there was no more like monetary incentives behind the promised contracts from the U.S. military to the Canadian contractors to build these delivery systems. And somebody, somebody in the Canadian civil service actually very much tied to Oman Salant. Remember that guy that was brought up in Naomi Klein's book? <coughs> that hadn't been at the meeting with Tizard at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel? That Oman Salant was actually the guy who was in charge of, or at least played a big role in, the decision to not just deactivate the existing Avro arrows that did exist, and we had like nine of them, but to actually send teams to turn them into scrap metal and destroy them. Thus, you know, undoing the most incredible research ever. But now Victor Schauder found that his, his the promises were his backstab. And the the designs were absorbed into the US military through Avro Arrow at the time. And he was left out high and dry. He was not even participating in the development of this tech that was all classified. And he was sent back to Austria and died really depressed like a year later. Um, but that is real tech. Like this is actually stuff that has was this is a 1943 design of one of his uh, flying saucers by the Germans. The Italians had their own division. There were three different divisions all working on different designs for flying saucer tech. But the Japanese had their own too. Um, I have, a, I have a question. I think this ties into this. Uh, what about the beautiful German mystic woman who was involved oh. with channeling the, you know, she, they were having, she was having direct contact uh, with... Lovers. Yes, no, 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 no. What's the book you just bought? It's Hitler's priestess or something? There yeah. were three of them. She was like Barbie Eden and I yeah. dream of Jeannie, you know, she was really pretty. Like they, they were claiming to get a message from extraterrestrial yeah. from their hair. Okay. Yeah. So I can't speak about it. I bought a book on it. Simply bought the book on it. Okay. And, uh, Right. We're going to do a follow-up meeting because that's yeah. going to be a big part of her volume two of the uh, okay. the Empire. That's really intriguing. She's really fascinating. Yeah. 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 No, but I mean, the whole but that's the thing. Like, there's a whole like theme racing throughout all of these things of the occult, right? And so, like, 
the, the top dogs around Göring are all members of the Thula Society, mm-hmm. the Black Arts yeah, cult, the secret society in Germany, around which the leading figures of the Nazi SS, even the Haushofer, who wrote, was sort of the ghostwriter for Mein Kampf, were all members of this thing, Rudolf Hess, all of these things, were members of the secret society that had their own, anyway, it's a whole thing. But that's everywhere. And the fact that I, I, I chose to put Joseph Bryan III in his Freemasonic garb, uh, that's a big part of his identity. You know, he's a Maryland high-level Grandmaster Freemason. It's a big part of his identity. And, all, and they all work. So, yeah, the, the growth of this approach to military science and science more generally, even quantum mechanics, grew out of occult sects that took control of things that were formerly done by creative, loving human beings and then they put a new type of a, a new type of framework on top of them to say, no, we're going to do things in a like what Niels Bohr does. So the Niels Bohr reform of quantum mechanics. You know, you have real people like Madame Curie and, and Max Planck and all these amazing scientists making a breakthrough of the of the atom, which is is opening the door to new potentials for goodness for humankind. You know, you can like green deserts all of a sudden with the power you can get from the atom which can desalinate water, can do so much good, but it can also do so much bad, too. And they're trying to take control of it so that they can, they can give the appearance of free science but none of the reality. So they, they mentally and spiritually handicap those who adopt the filter of statistical mathematical probability theory, which is what you're told if you're a follower of Niels Bohr or the Copenhagen School, like Max Heisenberg. Uh, Werner, Werner Heisenberg? Heisenberg. What's the first name? Wolfgang Pauli, that whole network. Um, they're, they're, they're all deniers of the belief in truth. They're of the view that if you want to be a true scientist, you can only use the science of maybes, rolling the dice. That you can never know where the electron is going to be because you physically, sensually can't experience a photon or an electron. Yeah. As soon as you try to look at it, you change it. So like, well, thus, the, all you can know is probability. That it might be in this area. Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's his, yeah, he made it a principle. He made the unknowability, the principle itself rather than seeing that maybe there's a flaw in how you're thinking about your relationship as an observer to the observer. Maybe that's the problem, but they don't want to investigate that, and they just want to impose this like denial of causality onto science as a whole, which then gives you the appearance of being free, but you're not, if you're a scientist. And they do the same thing Darwinian, the Darwinian biological reforms too, that you know, ultimately it's statistical probabilistic science that you know, there's a random mutation function going on, so it's a, remo- a removal of first directives. Yeah, there's removal of design, purpose, intention, all of these intelligible things that are simple that would help us make discoveries that people like Einstein or Planck or Mach, you know, Mendeleev all believed in, design, purpose, that, yeah, that's gone. And now it just becomes a new god of chaos or a new god of randomness that you can go through uh, <laughs> rituals of, of probability functions. And from there, you know, all of a sudden, the great Hancock thesis that maybe we are interfacing with aliens by, by getting onto LSD or other psychedelics that allow our minds to tap into this seventh dimension, which is where the aliens live and give us technology, like the, what the, the Egyptians must have used, which must have been given to, to build the pyramids by these interdimensional aliens that the early priesthood was tapping into by their use of plant light, right, or wheat light, which is what the MK ultra scientists like Albert Hoffman were studying, who became the world leading expert in the ancient mystery schools and their use of plant light that had an intoxicating psychedelic effect 
which is part of the Eleusian Mysteries, yeah. part of the Delphic uh, cult, the initiative process of a lot of these popular, schools. Popularized by Carlos Castaneda. And yeah. And those books. Yeah. And the whole Lawrence Rockefeller thing was really promoting that whole thing, trying to say, oh, that's actually, there's a scientific reason for something we thought of as just a freaky, superstitious thing done by cults. Yeah. Actually, there's a scientific reason why we can all be initiated as a mass into this new experience. So, um, yeah, and it, it's really, it's I was going to read the last crazy thing, but there's not crazy things. I, but I, I hope I made the point sufficiently, at least thus far, that <clears throat> it, when confronted with those who say that the Rockefeller machine or intelligence agents in the 2014s took over and poisoned a good, authentic UFO truth movement, it's actually the case that there's never been an example of an authentic UFO truth movement or honest billionaires or, or anything trying to like bring this to life. It's always been a big part of a psyop that's very much tied to the, the normalization of drugs with right that, that's tied to also the creation of new synthetic religions. That's tied to the takeover of Hollywood movies and our entertainment culture mm-hmm. that are all tied to preparing us for a type of reset of our minds and souls yeah. in a way that would be more conform in conformity. Rock and roll. British Invasion Beatles, yeah. Right. I was just telling Pascal today that you know when you look at Alistair Crowley, uh, yeah. he's on the cover of uh, Sergeant Pepper's. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Jimmy Gage, the uh, singer for Led Zeppelin, with the guitar player. Biggest collector of Alistair Crowley paraphernalia. Owner, owner of uh, his house at one point. There you go. Yeah. Right? Uh, Jay Z, big fan of Aleister Crowley. Do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law, written on his like guards and paraphernalia. Yeah. So this stuff didn't disappear. It's not like something that was just in the fringe and we could no, that's a, an active present part of our lives. So when we wonder where where did John Podesta and Pizzagate come from? Like how could such a thing exist that John Podesta and his brother are involved in something that involves mass child uh, sex traffic? Right? Um, what about Mountbatten, who had had thousands of, of cases of young children in Ireland and India that he molested and abused as part of a network. Where, is, where does this come from? And it's the same thing when we start seeing, well, what was the Thule Society initiation process? What were they doing as their pleasure tactics in, in initiating their, their own managers into the upper mysteries that, that, that involved a nasty part of it, which is what Crowley was also doing. With the order of the NATO and the Brussels is also associated with the initiation. NATO and Brussels? Yeah, is associated with the satanic and uh, pedophilia um, as part of the initiation process to higher levels. Was that Kruger who went through that? Uh, Richard Coutrell goes through it in his Operation Gladio book. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he was an investigator for the European Union uh, Parliament. Wow. Yeah. And you go through that in your book a little bit too, right? No, I haven't touched on that. That's for volume two, that kind of weird, okay. that weirder <laughs> stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There's this new movie out now about child trafficking. The sound of mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And it's yeah. been really attacked by Hollywood. And it has. And now we, it, 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 I think just appreciating this whole story helps one understand a little bit more why these freaks in Hollywood would be so threatened mm-hmm. by the very simple, clear, provable messaging inside of something like Sound of Freedom that came from the outside, which blew the box office lit up like Indiana Jones yeah. and so many other movies, right? And it also shows you what people actually are craving for, even though we're told, no, we're supposed to like Indiana Jones and... Yeah. Barbie, that's, that's all people care about that we should, we should also calibrate ourselves to. The fact is, 
the, the box office to show people actually want to see something authentic. I think it's amazing that Oppenheimer and Barbie are out at the same time. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's really and people are watching both. Yeah, they're watching both. You know, but Barbie and Oppenheimer calling it. Well, I think I do kind of want to see them for, for social engineering curiosity, yeah. but. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it, but it's also interesting with that in mind as well. Like the, at the Rising Tide Foundation, we created a cinema, a cinema list. Because when you actually start digging, you can find that John F. Kennedy was working with people like the film director John, John Frankenheimer. Yeah. And if anybody's ever watched Seven Days in May, or uh, The Manchurian Candidate, or what's the other one? Seconds. Which who? Seconds. Seconds? Yeah. I never saw that. Is that oh, John Frankenheimer? Yes, it is. Really? Yeah, it's really good. Oh, cool. What's the message? <laughs> um, a man uh, changes his entire physiognomy. It's Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson, I think it's in Really? Yes. Uh, okay, I'll check it out. He, he changes his tone. Okay, that might be on our list. Okay, that's cool. Well, see, but that's the thing. Like, if you look at a lot of the stories that, that people like like Frankenheimer were, were promoting, and, and JFK gave Frankenheimer full access to the White House to film Seven Days in May. What's the story? The story is... Uh, a military coup run by the, joint, the general, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, played by uh, Burt Lancaster, to overthrow the sitting president who's trying to achieve a peace process with the Russians and abolish nuclear uh, arms. That's the theme. And the, the, the general, the Joint Chiefs, have, has created an elaborate conspiracy to overthrow the, the president and install a military junta as a dictator to, uh, to keep control of America. And, and the president's name is, is President uh, Lyman. Which is a direct reference to Lyman Ludminster as well, just to you know, get a sense of the drama on the, t- on the stage, mm-hmm. and uh, and how that plot is overthrown by a character played by Kirk Douglas, who's a, who's a patriotic um, you know soldier who blows the whistle on the on the coup. But that's the story, you know, and the JFK loved that story. He really wanted that message to be communicated to the American people and the American military and the American military. That was a double message, right? Yeah. So there's a whole network of really wonderful um, filmmakers. Uh, including D- uh, Dalton Trumbo, who wrote a film called Executive Action. Actually, in 1976, there's a movie that Dalton Trumbo, the guy who wrote Spartacus, um, he's part of the, the blacklisted Hollywood writers who were all they dubbed comedies and their careers were destroyed for like 10 years. And JFK rehabilitated him actually by going to see Spartacus. And it was very skeptical. Why would an anti communist president go and see a movie, you know, staged apparently? Of, of, of a, well, I mean, the movie is about a slave rebellion against the Roman Empire, which is not very subtle in, in its messaging of how that applies to the world in the 60s. Uh, but why would JFK then go endorse and say this is an amazing movie when it was written by a commie evil guy that we were all told was evil, Dalton Trumbo? Well, I mean, that, and that got Dalton back into the, the mainstream again and able to make movies. But he wrote one of his last movies was Executive Action. Well, he was writing the movie still, but he had to do it under an alias. Right, that's true. And he even won Oscars. Right. And nobody knew who it was. Right, like Roman Holiday. Yeah. Um, Stanley Kubrick was willing to take credit for Spartacus, by the way. Right, Stanley Kubrick was a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so people watch Executive Action. It's a story of the, the three teams organized uh, to kill JFK using Cuban exiles and uh, U.S. military intelligence brass with a whole scenario floating around the surface to reduce the world population to 500 million people. That's actually one of the characters who's paying for the whole thing is openly saying, that's my motive at the end of the day. It's not just killing Kennedy. If that's unfortunate, evil to do a greater good, which is to reduce the world population to save nature. That movie was banned from theaters <laughs> for 20 years. I think it was only in 1992 
that is finally made available for the public to watch. No theater will touch it. But you can watch it now. You can buy it, I think, on, uh, it's like 20 bucks to buy it on, on YouTube. But uh, it's, it's sharp. So it's, it's interesting to see that there are these fights, right? Like, say that there's two Americas, a deep state America, and an authentic America that have historically clashed. There's like two, two Hollywoods, too, right? There's, there's Hollywood is, is a, or the, the, this, the, the domain of filmmaking is one of the, the greatest powers to do great good, just like the atom. You do great good because you're working on the imagination of the people, you're working on the zeitgeist of what of what people imagine they could be, what the future could be. You could do so much good. But you could also do so much bad, too, right, if it's harnessed by an evil agenda or an, an, an anti-human agenda. You could do a lot of damage. So that's, again, sound of freedom. It's so interesting that that was able to come in with the power of storytelling, um, which, you know, that was very powerful. Matt, I have a question for you. Mm. Like when I I listen to I've listened to a lot of your material, and I really enjoy it. It's great. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about it is, you know, there's been a question to what extent everything is corrupted, and and you sort of break that down and say, you know, it's not that's an oversimplification, and there really are these forces that are working towards something better. Mm. There's people that have become, you know, so skeptical that they basically see it's all corrupt. Um, but in the same vein, you sort of not, I don't know if attack is the right word, but you reveal um, a kind of the cults that are these negative cults of mystery schools that are very negative that believe in these sort of mystical energies and powers and human abilities. And you really talk about how that is, has been coordinated with controlling the human population. Mm. But what I see is there's those, um, those, what would you call it, those abilities, those powers, those, that aspect of reality is very real. Mm-hmm. And there is a positive side to it as well, which some people really call spirituality. So I, I'm, I'm trying to differentiate. There's a positive and a negative side to that. Yeah. And that we, I don't, th- I think it's important not to color that whole those mm-hmm. concepts mm-hmm. as strictly negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that, and I, I do think mm-hmm. that you're right in the sense that. The, the empire empires are always or oligarchs. Let's just say because there might be some examples of, of benevolent empires maybe in history. But but oligarchs, those who think in terms of the master-slave construct of, of dynamics, um, will always tend to be really good at perverting that which exists. But they are not too good at creating anything authentic. So you know they're they're very reactive in that sense. So when human beings bring something new and creative and good into the world. They would prefer the best. The best scenario for an oligarch is to stop it from happening in the first place. But if you can't stop it from happening and it happened, and it starts taking off, um, the, the next best thing is to try to get close to it and and destroy it from within. Mm-hmm. Right? Corrupt it, make it your own, and destroy the soul of the thing. And they, they do that with everything. Um, so the, the way I, I sort of look at the question of like good spirituality versus the kind that's more unfavorable or that's more promoted by these the different occult um, negative groups is tied to, I think, the, the sentiment of, of 
something I was, I was talking just when you and I were talking about this last night or yesterday with, with Pascal, this idea of, of St. Augustine. And in St. Augustine's um, City of God, he talks a lot about the, the loves that should be loved and the loves that shouldn't be loved because everything is love. We all love. We all yearn for that which is not. We yearn, right? Um, but we, for humans who have free will and conscience and reason, the things that other animals don't really quite express that way, um, like the, the bee loves that which bees love, right? And bees promulgate their species, they seek pleasure, happiness, they, they make honey, right? They look for flowers, and they have their, their role to play within a process that is made better by the, the, their, their nature. Um, so every species has what it, what it loves. And, and with humans, we can love that which shouldn't be loved. Because, again, Lord Mombas, you right? love a lot of things you shouldn't be loved. And when you love that which should be loved, it's unlovable. It's actually a point. When you love that which should, should be loved, um, it, 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 it creates a good pride. Like, you, you're proud of loving that which is intrinsically lovable, but you're also more humbled as well. You're, you're, you're made a better person by loving the truth, by discovering the truth and sharing the truth. You, you're proud of having done the work, and you're proud of what you own as a little spark of truth, but you become aware of just how little you know, which is sort of the, the Socrates uh, playful idea of, of, like, the more I know, the more I don't know. Um, it doesn't mean you can't know anything, but it just means you become a whit more appreciative of, of your humility and how beautiful and grand and unknown the universe is, right? So that then creates, a, I think, a, a climate that is more conducive to truly loving other people for their potential of what they could be and, 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 and tapping into courage that you would not have if you didn't make that experience, like a JFK or a Martin Luther King, what gave him that consistent caliber to tap into that well. So their spirituality is much more substantial versus somebody who has the fake knowledge, right? They, they love things that shouldn't be loved. They've gone through the dark arts, the secret knowledge of the inner elites. They didn't earn the knowledge, but they went through some rites of initiation. They went through some... They went through the steps that gave them an emotional experience. Maybe did some drugs that were tied to certain like steps you took to give you that experience. But now you feel like you're an initiate. That makes you somehow better than those who are not initiated. It separates you and from your ability to love your fellow human, and thus it makes you more inclined to be an instrument of a will that is of your own. And in a way, what I'm getting from what Mark said is that, yeah. like amongst us, there are addicts. You know, yeah. there are addicts. There are people who are sensitive. There are people who have different negative effects. They're conduits in a way. And can some of these people, these addicts, can they be corrupted? Or can they be used, you know, can they be seduced to power? I mean, that would be like, you know, when Jesus is tempted by Satan saying, all this could be yours, you know? Is, it, is this true? Are there people amongst us that are addicts, that are special, that are would you mean like people who are more advanced on the level of maybe like, spiritually spirit, open, spiritually open ways that some of us aren't? You know? Yeah, I would say there's people who are more or less, but I don't think, as long as you're a living human being breathing, you're always going to be susceptible to arrogance, pride, corruption, a false, a false uh, path that could bring you down a path. But ad- addicts can be used. It depends how you define addicts. Like, how are you thinking about addicts? People who are maybe psychic, people who have. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an open-minded person, but I, I don't. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I try to stick with what I, what I, where I'm at right now is I, I know that the oligarchy loses power and they despise this uh, quality that humans exhibit of of uh, tapping into a love of their, the health of their soul and their immortality and giving of themselves for others and for a greater cause, that's something that I know for a fact, no matter if you're Indian or 
secret Muslim or Jew or whatever. Yeah. They, they always that always makes us better, makes empires weaker, and they hate that and find different artful ways of corrupting that natural maturation of human being to integrate our desires with what our duty says we should be, right? Because that's the thing. We all, when we're babies, you're sometimes you're told you have to brush your teeth, you have to do this, but you don't want to. You'd rather eat the chocolate instead of the broccoli. And for babies, that's what you expect. But, you know, if you haven't resolved that problem by the time you're like 50, <laughs> at that point, there's a problem. Like, you, you're, you're stagnated in your development, right, as a, as, a, as a person. So a healthy human being should, as quickly as possible, learn that what we should do and what we should want to do should align as much as possible. Maybe never be perfect, but you should generally want to do what you should do. And hence JFK's remarks, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right. make a lot more sense. And that's the whole idea. Just, yeah. just to clarify, mm. the word I'm looking for is subversion. Yeah. So there's lots of great human qualities yeah. that can be subversive. Oh, yeah. and, and personally, I do think there are different states of consciousness amongst human beings. You know, there's, just like humans in general, who generally, we'd all agree, have a different state of consciousness than the animal kingdom. Yeah. Within the human group, there's different states of consciousness as well. And I think that's really underappreciated. And, you know, can people of a higher state of consciousness, consciousness be subverted? Absolutely. But despite that corruption, we shouldn't, I don't think we should um, dismiss the recognition that there, there are states of consciousness that are accessible to humans and open up some wonderful possibilities within the species to, you know, rather than... You know, psychic phenomena? Rather, you're talking about not really, I'm not necessarily... No, I don't really want to say psychic phenomena. I've, so I'm not against that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, not, not, yeah. I'm just saying there is, um, you know, species of consciousness that are achievable and worth um, exploring. And sometimes it sounds like you're sort of denigrating that because it's been subverted. Can you give me an example yeah. of what, give me a more concrete example of a type of a state of consciousness that you're referring to that I, that I can respond to? Mm-hmm. I'm not That's sure. a good question. Um, I would say like humans that have actually got control of themselves, they're not as reactive, they're in a place, they've developed a place within themselves that is um, you know, it's it's an achievement of a <laughs> sort of like you know coming back to it, defining it in the same terms that um, you know that uh, I don't well, know. I, well, I mean, well, he, uh, I guess that's not exactly. An he's example. an evil person, right? He's, 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 yeah, he was an example of like how not to use that kind of information. Like, like, like that's sort of self-discipline, self-control. Well, I would say like you know we, we he learned that the like had, there's a video or I don't know if it's video, but there's stories of him where he like he would someone asked him, well, can you control somebody else on the street? And so oh, yeah, like, he not a power to... Yeah, he walked behind the person and he's in, he kind of adopts the same gait, the same pace. He's basically mimicking the person from behind and he's kind of creating a telepathic link, I guess. And then he just decides to make the guy fall down and he does. Like, yeah, he should just do that. I mean, but, but this is like... 
information um, that you that can be used for not so good things, like controlling other people. Right. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But well, of course, it, this this stuff is always used um, for subversion. It's the the um, it's human, human the social engineers are really like um, students of um, human psychology that have been around for ages and ages. Oh yeah. Yes. Did you want to say something to that? I was just wondering what Quan's thoughts were on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that Quan. Yeah. Quan. You're, uh, Would you like to share your insights? <laughs> okay. Once again, I would run to favor the philosopher Plato. Okay. So I think that the true epistemological development to the timeless forms of beauty, goodness, and truth that we'll always have is imitations. Okay, and I think one easy way to distinguish between true stuff and the imitation is that the true stuff will bring you to more beauty, goodness, and truth, and the imitation will bring you more to greed, possessiveness, and show off. And the central concept is homology, okay? Because when you read the Crowley or you read Madame Blavatsky and stuff like that, they will give you a fake imitation that will make you believe that you're part of an inner circle of superior beings. So you better go to the true epistemological development that will make you truly superior. But when you're truly superior, you will also think that everyone is superior. Okay, so, and you don't have the impression to be inside an inner circle with only your bodies, but that everyone is superior. Hmm. Well said. Was that, well, I, got, I got two questions there in a row. Is, is that sort of... Well, I got, I got oh, sure. it's, uh, okay, well, first, just I'll give the young lady a chance to... Sure. Are you kind of satisfied with some of that? I think it just went off somewhere else, but... Uh, I like it someone else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, okay, maybe we'll, we'll put that on then, I guess, and revisit that. I, I diverged a little bit from... Well, I think you guys and I were definitely being on the same frequency. <laughs> and it's a difficult question. It, it is difficult, especially on the, on the question of the adepts and, and the, the perversion of it. I, I, I tend to like what you said. Yeah. But yeah, let's, let's, let's maybe re- revisit this question, because it is so complex, and so it's, it's not an easy thing to talk about. Critical thing. Well, those are the two things. Yeah. The people forsake in their lives. They have the choice yeah. to decide. And they have the, the intellect, both given by to analyze That's true. To make the right decision. That's true. That's true. They don't exist anymore. Both generally. It's rarer and rarer. Rarer, not yeah. I know, yeah. You know, it's, just, it's a good point. But hold on, this gentleman's been waiting for a so long time. And so, so, is, so is the guy. Yeah, so we're talking about consciousness. And, you know, I just look at that as consciousness, like how close you are to the truth of ourselves in the universe. So, like, for me, you know, I just woke up a few years ago, and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what is the truth? What are us human beings? What are we really capable of? You know, how much is it isn't from us? So for me, as an example, right now, I'm trying to correct my vision. Through you know natural methods, oh, like exercises with uh, yeah, these kind of things, you know. Because I'm wondering, do I really need to be enslaved to these things for the rest of my life? Right. Well, and is it able for me to, with higher knowledge, higher consciousness, you know, higher knowledge and truth, 
how much can I go beyond the limit, my perceived limit, limits that we have been that have been imposed on us our whole lives, you know? So yeah, 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 no, it's, it's but, you know, just what I said to him, I have the impression they are so obsessed about controlling our perception of life that I feel that we have more power than anything. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. the impression I have. I don't know because I'm, I'm on the same page as you know. Well, no, I'm saying we can. We are probably capable of so much more than we think we are. And I think you think you're a loser, and yet in your life you lose. No? <laughs> but if you yeah. so imagine, maybe it's much stronger. Well, the first thing you have to imagine it because it starts with imagination. Exactly. Yeah. So and that, that's the that's power of the arts as well, yeah, right? Like. When you're dealing with the question of literature, the arts, especially storytelling, like in film, is it paints an image of the future that is possible, and um, that's the first step to being able to like act on the future is to be able to imagine a future, which is something worth fighting for. And when they give you and us all again and again these dystopic, negative views of the future and human nature, human nature being selfish. It, or imagine, we can't imagine what a noble human being is, what a good future looks like. So we don't have a reference point, a guide, something to, to contrast the ugly with. We're like, oh, things are just injustice. There's like, you know, 15,000 children who died of starvation well, today. That's, that's a, well, that's just the way it is. It's worldview. People just accept that things are the way they are and they can't change. Exactly, because they don't have a standard of justice in their hearts and minds. Yeah, just to yeah. relate it to the gentleman that was speaking in the front. Yeah. Uh, I also believe, you know, in the secret societies and the mystery schools, I truly believe there's a lot of good knowledge that they were hiding. Mm-hmm. They couldn't speak out in the open, otherwise they'd be uh, assaulted and murdered. So they have to hide it, you know, this secret knowledge through symbolism. Before uh, printing trusting like, you know, it's, it's the old, old knowledge. <laughs> so my point is, I don't think the secret societies are all inherently evil. No, you, and you, you, like Mozart, who was a beautiful soul, um, assassinated by the oligarchy um, at his prime, creative prime, um, took his relationship to uh, the lodge, the lodge that he was part of in Vienna, very seriously. It wasn't just a superficial thing he was doing. Um, the magic flute. Yeah. The magic flute opera is Yeah, yeah but, but there's a very different message that you see embedded mm-hmm. within the storyline unfold within the within the magic flute, as well as the quality of the music that makes you a more strong, better person, tied mm-hmm. to the idea of integrating your desires with your duty, mm-hmm. especially in the relationship with um, um, like a man or woman going through a process of self-discovery. But you know that that end with Zoroastro overseeing them ushering in a new age of brotherhood, but based upon a true love of man and a woman and respect and partnership, that is a much more integrated thing than, than the former, more dominant ideas of male and femaleness that had been, you know, long-standing for a long period of time, where there is, there is not that, that common respect and equality that you saw with the type of messaging that most people are trying to get across with that, or with the Alphabet Corpus, or the Requiem. And he was killed, like he even said to his wife, Costanza, that I, I've, been, I've been poisoned. And when you look at the battles geopolitically of the different lodges, the lodge that he was a part of was trying to take a lot of the, the what we today call like sacred geometries, but make it intelligible. So like the Schenkenator, who was the head of that lodge, had a journal, a science journal, for the masses to, to demystify the things like the golden section, the, the side of the, the, the pentagon as it relates to the, the diameter of a circle uh, inscribing around a pentagon, or circumscribing a pentagon. There's a certain like relationship, which is very useful, that, that was studied by the, by the Egyptians, by the Greeks, by Pythagoras, by Pythagoras who studied in Egypt. 
um, that, that is tied to also something universal about the heavens, about the relationships of the planets around the sun, or, around which the golden section was very useful in Kepler's construction of the harmonies and, or, and his idea of the universal law of planetary motion. But he was trying to make it intelligible, demystify it from the, the, the necessary veil of obscuritism, which is needed for the, the, the more perverse occult schools to charm you into wanting fake knowledge and then feeling like you've got it because you just like went through some rites you like you know but you didn't know what you did. You were never you were never given the question to the thing you were giving the answer to. And so you don't even know if what you know is true. What you feel like it is and you think it is and, and, and so well, this this is the challenge. It's very hard to measure because as soon as you bring the idea of measurement in, it's a linear concept. It's a linear way of, of looking at things and the thing that you're looking at is not linear spirituality yeah how do you measure love right there's no way but I think we can all agree it's a real phenomenon mm. like you know like the the experience of caring about one another is okay you can reduce it into some kind of biological phenomena yeah. But Darwinian and right. uh, self-interest or something. But yeah. there's another aspect of it, and I think this is, you know, humanity. There is a part of humanity that is growing into something greater. Yeah. And you know, we should. I think there's so much negativity, and even the twisting and the, the dark side of um, of uh, of human development. We should be careful to continue to nurture the appreciation that there really is something to grow into right. and develop within ourselves. That's good. My, my only question was, I hope you do another talk at some point about Jung involved with this and archetype. That'll be easy. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I would love to hear this, you know, because, I mean, I don't want to open up a can of worms right now, but that would be so amazing to hear this and with that perception, that overgrid about, you know... Yeah, I'm, I'm presently doing research that's going to cover uh, a, a lot of the, the, the Freudian stuff and, and yeah. uh, parapsychology more more generally as well, but uh, it's still it's like a massive endeavor, yeah. but hopefully, like, in a few months, we might be in a position to, to do a discussion on that that's a responsible discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll want to hear yeah. that. And, yeah. uh, and to be sensitive, right, to, to pay the respect of, you know, not to make some shortcuts because there's obviously a lot of controversy that is very easy to find right away mm -hmm. but to really look at it you know from all from all angles um, on that note though I know that you've waited for a while for your question yeah, no, I'm so sorry you know, I, know, I, I, find, I, I think there's <clears throat> I wanted to put a fine point on things we were talking about like the valid the validness of some of the history yeah. of schools and these are ancient schools yeah but implicit in everything we're talking about, all the UFO stuff, all yeah. that, the implicit thing is this. This is propaganda, right? Yeah. And there's a, the propaganda word, we're washing And the whole yeah. point of propaganda is to basically cloud our, our perception. Yes. And to take away, and in fact, to be into us what we can expect from ourselves and from life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, like you were talking about fusion earlier. Yeah. And uh, I followed closely, for instance, the cold um, fusion controversy. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting there, is that 
So you had a perspective there that I had not realized before, was that even the, 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 the standard fusion with the, the coconut reactive and so on, it's not working. You're saying it's not working by design. I mean, if I read you, if I, yeah. listened, if I heard well, you. Well, that wasn't just, that was every design of coconut fusion. Right, but it wasn't, um, it didn't cover the coconut, because fusion never had government money. No, never. But the whole point of all this, I think, is that they, like, to keep us unmoved, like, yeah. to, so pro- you can't, and so propaganda, so in fact, all of these, these layers that you sort of discussed, essentially, attempts to keep us down. Yes. And so that we cannot be aware, and know, and because as soon as we're aware, they're in trouble. Yes. Yes. You know, yes. and so that's just the point I wanted to, because I think that, like consciousness, higher consciousness is important, it's all that we can become so much more, oh, yeah. but the point is we have to free ourselves oh, yeah. of the propaganda that surrounds us to the point that most of us don't even see it, even if you think we're free of it. Dude, that's well said. Very well said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing to add to that. Kevin, help me. Yeah, Kevin? Uh, I want to throw something at you with maybe other people, but I want to make some comments first, uh, yeah. because it seems... We're talking about uh, attaining higher uh, um, levels of consciousness and the um, different secret societies. Uh, you know, Quan, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about your concept of, of open versus closed oligarchies, right? Yes. Because we're playing with those two concepts right now. There's some, you, you were talking about Mozart who were, was working it with people who would try to propagate some knowledge and you have other people who want to obscure them, right? Um, and I want to bring the the Promethean myth into the discussion because when we talk about Terence McKenna, right? And he was working with psychedelics. You have also, and you talked about Graham Hancock. Uh, Graham Hancock is working with um, McKenna's brother. I forgot his first name. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so these two guys, they're they're working a lot with the younger Dryas hypothesis um, and all all the stuff you talked about about how we we came to have civilization, right? And one of the myth they are trying to push, apart from the you know the comet that uh, the comet impact, yeah. which I don't think is true. Um, that that, that, that seeded the earth with lightning, or no, 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 no. It's more about the the the. Um, the myths of ancient aliens yeah. that came on the earth, who gave you know the the, the image of the pine cone that uh, they gave to human okay. uh, to give them knowledge of oh. civilization, well, okay, which is like, basically like the, the movie, problem. The movie Prometheus, the Hollywood movie. Basically, like basically. Hybrid, hybrid ape, alien, hybrid thing. Right, that, right. Okay. But the idea is that what they're trying to push out there, as far as propaganda goes, is that. The, the Promethean myth is not from a Platonic sense, meaning that we didn't get through that, uh, we didn't develop that knowledge and higher civilization through the power of the mind, but through the power of, you know, psychedelics and aliens, yeah. right? So I'm just throwing it out there, like the, the, the Promethean myth uh, and how we see it, meaning the fire of knowledge and the mind or the fire of, you know, chemistry and aliens then. This reminds me, and people can chime in, but, but this reminds me a little bit of Aldous Huxley's definition of what happiness is. 
Right. Based on the idea that it is an electrochemical and not excretion of the brain, which can be induced by certain types of drugs that activate those happy parts of the brain that make, make us happy. But he didn't have an idea of anything deeper than that, and thus, if you want a happy people, you can specify drugs that make the happy parts of the brain work. But he was looking at a shadow and mistaking it for the cause, because the cause might be, well, you know, just helping somebody else, doing something charitable for somebody in need, uh, discovering something that you didn't know before, uh, doing something, telling a story to a child, or you're listening to your grandmother, or whatever, right? There's so many metaphysical, spiritual, real causes that justify why the material part of ourselves has an effect. And they don't believe in that. But they're like, okay, well, what matter can we induce this other matter to create that effect by to make people more pliable? And they want to make us believe that that's the only way to attain happiness is through those drugs. And yeah, so not true. But they also simplify this. I photosynthesis. We are studied from our culture. Yes. And they replace one thing to make a, to make the agriculture go. You okay? You see, but there's a whole cycle, and when the cycle is followed, it takes it takes its time. But at the end, it's all the soil that becomes more uh, fertilized, and it, yeah. and then after they give you another thing to do that and that. So it's a bit the same thing as, as you're saying. You're happy, so you need this and this, but there may be a whole process that actually makes other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that feeds other things, that makes it a whole cycle. Right, well, they want the direct experience, but they don't want to take the time to earn it. They just want to force the effects without appreciating the process, which takes, yeah, again, it's like like you said. And maybe feeds other things as well. Yeah, 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 that's a good Mm -hmm. But the Promethean thing, too, right, that there's, there's different... Like the oligarchy, people will often say, good people in the alternative media community, many of them don't like Plato and Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And Plato called himself a Promethean because he was. Mm-hmm. But they're looking at it because they see that many many members of the occult inner elite of the oligarchs call themselves Platonic Prometheans. Yeah, and they equate Prometheus with Lucifer. Yes. And then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. so Zeus becomes Christian God. And so there's a barrier there. We, I, I'm not going to study Prometheus or Plato because, I mean, it's Satan. Yeah, they right? don't even read it because they don't so. want to get charmed into evil, so they'll not even read it because they'll just talk about it, and they yeah. won't realize that, no, there's a, a perversion of Platonism. There's a pervers- perversion of what Aeschylus is clearly saying when you read Prometheus Bound. Or read the Republic as a literal document because that's, oh, I yeah. think, the other way of like what is mystical, which is such a general term, which is, um, you know, mystical in the better side of it is like we have a logical side of our understanding, but we have also the non-literal side. And there are the, the higher forms of knowledge are not something that you can learn as a rule. It's, uh, it's something more than that. And that's why, like, the platonic dialogues, it's a discussion. Yeah. It's an active process of motion of mind. It's not a static, you know, uh, doctrine of, uh, of rigid law. And so the Republic is written as a thought experiment where you, c- you continuously go with one thought experiment, see where it leads you. You go to another thought experiment, see where it leads you. And it's not Socrates himself doing these thought experiments on his own. He has, he's guiding people who are very imperfect, who think that they know, through their own uh, prejudices and their own assumptions, where will this lead you if you were to actually take responsibility for how you think? Mm-hmm. Where would you go? And people constantly misquote the Republic as if he was for all of these terrible conclusions when really it was supposed to be lessons for what were the common misconceptions 
uh, in those days, which we share today, where are these going to lead you? And he's constantly misquoted because people only think literally today. They're not able to, to think uh, in the non-literal sense. And the problem with teaching people how to think properly in the non-literal sense is that there isn't a, a set curriculum or rules to learn from. Yeah. But, there is, but there is a, a proper structure to it, yeah. nonetheless, yeah. that is not the same form all the time but it has to it has to obey you can say um, if any law it's like it's it's universal law it's natural law that we follow in that this is the idea of the two brains like the, the right side and the left side the, the right side that is more like visualization metaphor that's how it feels things there's no time no logic yeah, I mean, sure. from this yeah I mean we need both right like yeah. we have to because Imagine, like, if you were to think like, you know, an omnipotent uh, being, you wouldn't think in terms of categorizations because everything is connected to everything. Mm -hmm. But our minds can't process absolute knowledge. So in order to digest, especially in the first stages, you have to do a certain amount of categorization. But then as you become more knowledgeable, the categorizations become bigger, they overlap more until it becomes connected, but not in a messy irresponsible way it, it becomes connected through knowledge and, and wisdom but you, you can't skip those steps because if you try to connect them um, and skip the steps of the process that Quan is always uh, going through in, in a very generous way teaching us um, you're going to you're going to definitely mess it up and then it becomes very irresponsible because you're taking half truths and you're taking half falsehoods and you're mixing them together and it becomes very hard for people to differentiate mm -hmm. what is the truth from what is the, the false. In terms of our <coughs> brain, in terms of the design of our brain, it's why we have the corpus callosum and why it, you know, it, it has to balance the two yeah. spheres of the brain, the yeah. corpus of the brain. Yeah. You know, because the, the other one wouldn't make any sense with that. Exactly. How do, they, how do they harmonize and dance yeah, together? The process and prediction. For their purpose, right? Yeah. Instead of people saying, like, I was always told, you don't have to know about math and science because you're an artist. You're a right brain. Yeah. And that brainwashing means to thinking, yeah, I don't really need to work on thinking rigorously. Right. And then other people are told, oh, you're an engineer. You're a logic-minded person. You're not into the arts. So then it brainwashes people the other way. And then, so it's, it's a question of how do they, they obviously coexist and should integrate, but how do they do it in a natural way or an unnatural way? Because some people try to integrate them in a messy way. <laughs> yeah. And other, you know, which does, it's, it's like, this is where I think we get to the occult obscurantism, like the, the obscurantist uh, mysticism of trying to, like, integrate in, a, in an unlawful way yeah. versus integrating in a more, like, productive, lawful manner, yeah. which, which is out of the obscurantist uh, mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about the school and music and math and all that. So I found funny in high school, they had a thing where students would study math and music. Yeah, and on one hand, doing listening left brain, and on the yeah. other hand, you're studying right brain. Yeah. Made up of music. Yeah. But then as you advance in high school, they like separate the students based on the level of math you're doing. <laughs> so like, you're, we have the 416 math people. And then the 436 math people. less smart, and the 436 yeah, yeah. smarter people, and they're looked upon as the better students. And I fell into that mind control when I was in high school, because I looked down upon people who were in 416 math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, I regret, like, now I just... So I have a very left brain. I'm more left brain. I'm more scientific. Right? I recently discovered spirituality. So now I need to... Train, not train, but develop my, my right brain more. 
because I totally never studied music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now all of a sudden, this late age, I'm thinking about maybe learning music. That's right. Dude, that's I'm right. considering, I don't know, maybe. In the U.S., um, they no longer teach math. They no longer teach music to kids. No, no right? No, no they, they flush it from kids. Yeah. And, and they've also flushed, like, in, in when I was in high school, they got rid of carpentry and, uh, and, and shop shop class. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I didn't get any useful practical skills that, I, that my uncles, my aunts, and my mother, they all got, like, a much more practical, useful yeah, education right. experience, even with all of its flaws. Right, we're, we're primed for the internet yeah. now. We're primed yeah. for social media, you know? Well, that's how they make you believe after they pick up a story, you can have a heart attack. Oh, yeah, right. Things like this. Yeah, you laugh so much, you get a heart attack and get COVID and die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, I'm just thinking here, we actually have a place all night. I paid money to own the place. So for everybody, just so you guys know, we don't have to disperse for nothing. We'll keep chatting. But for those who want to, it's almost six. Um, we can even set up, like, people can bring food in, bring wine in, if that's what you want to do, and just, like, have the bite eat and keep chat going with, with food and drink. That's okay. <laughs> or we could just not do that. <laughs> but really, whatever people want, uh, the place is ours, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So. <laughs> I wonder how, they, how this happens, because downtown Montreal, if you get, uh, I would imagine that people would probably be sleeping in here, right? but they don't. Somehow they. Well, they're changing the code, I think, every day. Oh, that's what they do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Because otherwise, yeah, it would be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Matt, I just yeah. want to... You know, my goal yeah, is really funny. Well, maybe this is a, a concept of spirituality. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's my concept of spirituality. But I made a um, kind of a, an idea that I would really like to meet you. Okay. Okay? Sent a little message out. No response. Just asking already. Whatever. I'm not saying anything. But that was my first attempt. Like, actual makes of contact. I'm drunk. And then, like, I come to Montreal once a month for, like, three, four days. And then you have this event. And it's like, come and meet the Cynthia and I. And for me, it's like, it's like a little miracle. It's like, wow, I put that out there. I'd love to meet this guy. And then all of a sudden, on the, on the one day that I really have here, I got here last night, I got to leave tomorrow. Where are you from? Um, I'm from Toronto. Okay. And, uh, but I got an apartment down on Mexico Street. And um, so I just think that, um, you know, there's uh, something that goes on the way, there's a dynamic of events. And there's a, there yeah. is a kind of people will maybe it's hard to define like it's a mystical thing, but there's a dynamic of events yeah. and and the way things come together. You know, maybe Carl, maybe that's where you're talking about young, ideas of synchronicities and stuff. Yeah, and it's a magical, wonderful component. Of that's all I really want to say about. It. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, yeah. I want to say thank you for in part. One of the things I find you've done is, like, if you look at the JFK conspiracy theories, there's so many different ideas out there. You can almost throw your hands up and go, well, we'll never know. And I, I'm really concerned about people doing that. I think there is a truth that we can get to and an understanding of this. And I love the way you package, you know, American history, Canadian American history, in the context of a global history. It's a way of understanding things. It's very interesting. 
like it's, 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 you've helped to give us a key mm-hmm. by which we can unlock events. I'm not saying you've got all the answers, but it's a very interesting, you've got a way of the land, it's very interesting and one of the most fascinating I've ever seen. I just want to thank you. Oh, thank you for those very edifying remarks. And no, you know, I, as far as the, the, the connection that people have um, that transcends space time, like there's so little we know That's about. That's how our relationship Well, so I was going to say, right? Like, Cindy and I, we had a big fight <laughs> over something stupid about Shogang. <laughs> <laughs> and then for three years, we didn't talk to each other. <laughs> um, and then one day, I get this impulse to uh, to give her a call. No, text me. No, to text you, that's it. I got the impulse to text you, and that was the same day or the day after. The night before, I was binge-watching um, presentations of Matt on the internet saying, like, man, I really messed up not, you know, keeping in contact with Matt, and now I have to, like, I just made it too weird, I, I don't know how to get back in contact with him, and he text messaged me the next day, mm-hmm. after yeah. three years. Yeah, you had to thought about me, I didn't want to talk about you, but for yeah. some reason at that same moment, yeah, I was like, all right, text you and let's meet up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's all, I can't explain that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could say it's a coincidence, but there's things like that that happen, and a lot of people have these types of experiences, so mm-hmm. probably more to it. Uh, <laughs> I have them regularly, and I just take them for like thanking. Awesome. So yeah, cool. so, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mystery and a wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.